Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. All theatre lovers, both out and proud and on the DL, welcome to Broadway Breakdown, a podcast discussing the history and legacy of American theatre's most exclusive address, Broadway. This series is called The British Invasion, and it is covering shows that originated in the United Kingdom and then transferred across the pond to our great white way, some making a great giant splash and some barely making a ripple. I am your host, Matt Koplick, and the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. With me today is an up-and-coming Broadway historian legend queen, some might say. She hasn't even reached a quarter of a century of age yet, and yet she's got a book coming out this March. And by this March, I mean next March, because that'll be 2022. It is uh, Gemignani. Wait, my phone. It's okay. is Gemignani, semicolon. Life and Lessons from Broadway and Beyond. And it is about the life and career of Paul Gemignani, uh, legendary music director. Please welcome Miss Margaret Hall. Hello, Margaret. Hello, hello. As an Irish American, I am going to have to sustain from the Cockney accent this time. Please do. Please do. That isn't even my best Cockney accent. I did go to school where we did have to learn accents. And while my Cockney is not amazing, it is better than what I did. It mm. was for comedic effect. Oh, naturally. It was my Van Dyke. <laughs> Not my Shani Wallace. But oh, we'll, okay. But we'll get into her in a minute. Woo. How are you doing today, Miss Margaret? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. It's so good to see you. It's so great to see you. Uh, uh. <laughs> Margaret and I are new friends, but we've become fast friends. Uh, we met through a uh, friend of the pod, Miss Jennifer Ashley Tepper. Yes. Speaking of legendary historians. Truly. Yeah, just a big old web of nerds. We are a very small circle. Yes. And I don't know about you, but I get really excited when I meet people who know just as much as me, and in some areas, more. So when you and I spoke, we got we got into some subjects, and there were some things that you said that I was like, I never knew that, and I was thrilled. It's the best, isn't it? I was like, oh my god. Not to get crude, but I was like, oh my god. It's almost like sex with someone new. It's like, oh, I forgot <laughs> that other people can do different things than me. Oh, it's wonderful. It's amazing when there's multiple brain powers in the room. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it's been a day that I've been just loving. Um, and maybe just because I'm giddy, because uh, this isn't technically the first episode I've recorded, but it is the first episode launching off this series of mm. British Invasions. Margaret, what British show are we talking about today? Today we are talking about Oliver! Exclamation mark. Thank you so much for including that exclamation. Um, what is your history with it? How, how did you come to the piece? Oliver and I have a very interesting history. So mm. I got very into musical theater at a very young age, but I didn't really get into Oliver until I was in middle school. My choir director, David Monsoor, his like babysitting technique on days when he'd be sick, where like a science teacher might bring in like an old VHS of Bill Nye, mm -hmm. he'd put on the film of Oliver for the choir class. <sighs> and we just watch it in like sections. So like 45 minutes on this day, and then maybe the next day we'll watch the next 45. Yeah. And I was so fascinated with the number who will buy. 
I would just sit there listening to those harmonies and taking it in. And the counterpoints and everything. It's yeah. so delicious. It is. Ah, that's a good teacher. Mm-hmm. He's uh, one of my favorite people in the world. Did you ever see it on stage? I have not seen it fully on stage. Mm-hmm. I've seen probably every number involving three people or less done in various cabarets and programs mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Being a boy in musical theater from a very young age, I was made aware of Oliver pretty young, mm. but I never really saw it uh, or ever got to do it. In fact, um, last night my mom and I watched the movie as like mm. final part of research for this. And my mom was like, why didn't you ever do Oliver? I was like, it just was never being done anywhere near us when I was a kid. She was like, oh, one of our greatest regrets. Like, <laughs> it's like you would have killed in that role. That's my family and Annie. We talk mm. constantly about how I should have played Annie. And just like never happened. But like no, through no fault of anyone's, just the fact, it just was never being done. Yeah. I did um, sing a couple songs from it for like concerts and stuff like that. I would be like, requ- I would be requested to do Who Will Buy or Where mm. Is Love. Um, I feel like every little musical theater boy whose voice doesn't immediately drop is brought in to do Where Is Love at some stage. Yeah. Well, because especially if you're a boy soprano, Mm -hmm. there aren't a lot of roles in the musical theater canon that allows you to do that. Like, if you're a boy in musical theater, like, you're doing Gavroche, you're doing Dodger, or you're doing, like, Winthrop, where it's, like, Mm. chest voice. And um, my chest voice didn't come in until I was, like, 10 or 11. Oh, wow. I was, like, oh, I was, like, pure boy soprano when I was little. Um, And my vocal teachers were always like opera singers mm-hmm. so they never wanted me to indulge in a chess voice like if, really once i got to 10 i changed voice teachers and she's like oh no you need to belt if you're going to be doing musical theater <laughs> you can't just do the voice soprano roles oh no uh, hey yeah. there always has to be a merry sunshine yeah, that is true but if you want to work in this business <laughs> you need to have versatility versatility yes so i did watch the movie when i was a kid i have no memory of it really and then when i was in high school the middle school was doing Oliver, mm. and I had done Godspell for them the year before as choreographer, and they asked me to do Oliver, so I did, and I watched the movie to, like, you know, get inspiration, and I was, like, so enthralled by it. It's a good movie. It's really well done. And then we did the show, and I wasn't really into the show as much, and I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, the movie is so much better. <laughs> um, and we'll get into more of that in a bit, but... That was like that was my thought circa 2008, and I hadn't seen the movie since then. But that was always sort of like on my brain um, whenever Oliver comes up. My brain always goes to, "Oh, the movie's better," mm. but I hadn't really thought about it much since. Uh, and then when we did research for this episode, and I found uh, the libretto for the original as well as um, some videos of the most recent West End revival, which I sent you. But even that revival like took some changes from the movie. Oh, a lot of the book has been updated. Yeah. Um, mostly just expanded. They've just added more. Because if you read the libretto of the original 1960 version, there's not a lot of book. Um, Lionel Bart definitely assumed that you knew the story of Oliver going into it. 100%. And we'll go into that a bit more. Uh, but then after I did all of that and then rewatched the movie last night, I'm like, oh, yes, no. 100% the movie is better. The movie is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And I said last night on Instagram that I personally think it's the best film adaptation of a stage musical ever. Not that it's the best movie musical, not that it's even the best movie musical based off of a stage show, but that it's the best adaptation because I find the stage musical to be kind of mediocre Mm -hmm. and the fact that they were able to mine such gold for the movie and every change they made just works so well. That is very interesting to me. That is my personal take because I would argue Little Shop may be a better movie based off of a stage musical. Because the movie version of Oliver isn't perfect. It has some 
you know, rough spots, but overall it's wonderful. And just the improvement from the show is like from night and day, but little shop is also based off of a nearly perfect musical. So I don't yeah. count the adaptation to be like leaps and bounds better. It's just, they're both equally good. Fair, it's a lateral, yeah. lateral move. Yeah. For me, the Oliver film is a near perfect movie musical, but I also think there are moments in the stage show that while I understand why they were cut mm-hmm. from the film, just cause there's some things that don't make sense. Something like That's Your Funeral, I'm very attached to. I don't know what it is about that song, Mm -hmm. but I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. And the way that it functions in the stage show, I think it's like two different mediums, honestly. Oh, are they two different mediums, Margaret? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Are film and stage different? (laughs) No, two different mediums in terms of how they're trying to tell the story. Because this isn't really... The first Dickens musical, but it's the first that was successful. Because yeah. there was the two Christmas carols before this. Mm-hmm. And essentially, with Oliver on stage, it's basically an elevated pantomime when it was first done. Mm-hmm. Of it's very much pulling off of that British music hall tradition. And then when they bring it into the film, they have to start thinking for an audience wider than general London. Mm-hmm. And that changes a lot of things, but I do think it loses some of that genre-specific je ne sais quoi, Mm -hmm. which I personally really enjoy. But I'm also the kind of person who gets super, super invested in, like, comma placement in librettos. So I am not your average audience member, and I think Oliver the Film is much better for the average audience member. Oh, Margaret just called me average. Hey! uh, We'll get into more details in a bit. You're, You're not wrong. Uh, but I do still believe that the film is better for various reasons, and we'll get into all of this. Okay. But before we do any of that, let's get into the history of the show, how it came to be. Mm. My research uh, only brought up so much. If there's anything, Margaret, that you want to include or that I got wrong, please let me know. But I tried to be as thorough as I could uh, without reading like a full-on biography of Lionel Bart. Um, I'll put on my teacher cap. Wonderful. So, first of all, Lionel Bart is our librettist composer and lyricist mm-hmm. for Oliver. And it is based off of the Charles Dickens novel, Oliver Twist, which came out um, in 1860, no, 1837. From mm. 1837 to 1839, it was first released as a serial. And uh, eventually, I think it was right before the the last serial came out, they released it as like a full-blown book. Yes, yes. Um, and I recently read the novel to kind of mm. get in the mind frame of it. Uh, novel's good. Uh, at first, when I was first getting into it, I was like, oh, like we're getting through some, like, a lot of plot. Uh, it's like, very Dickensian. Yeah. Um, well, because I always think of Dickens as, you know, my uh, old school librarian used to say Dickens was paid by the word, and it shows, because mm-hmm. he loves to spread shit out. Like, the first five pages of Tale of Two Cities is, like, about a mouse and things He's like that. He's not quite as bad as Victor Hugo. I'll give him that. Sure. Victor Hugo... It's we'll go into like the history. Oh, of you don't things. want to read thirty pages about the history of the French sewer system? Of course I do. <laughs> that's what that's what we came to talk about. Did oh, we naturally. Not? But no, um, with Oliver Twist, it 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 throws you for a loop because there's a lot of plot thrown at you in the first thirty pages. Like honestly, probably going up until um, end of Act One of Oliver, it's like the first hundred pages mm-hmm. of what is like a 400 page book so you're like oh my like it's we're... dense yeah but then so much more happens that the uh, movie and the stage show exclude the movie includes a couple of things from the novel that the show excludes they had to parse it down or it was going to be like an eight hour show yeah but i mean the stage show itself is still pretty lean it's a it's a yeah. tight two hours um 
But that's to say, I did really enjoy it. It comes off a bit more like Lemony Snicket series and Fortune mm-hmm. Events. Like that's the tone that Dickens has where it's like, this isn't a, a fictional thing I'm writing. Like these are based off of... Um, research papers I found. Let me tell you the tale of a young little boy. It was sort of meant to be a commentary on the social system and how it's very um, prescient right now because it's about how uh, society had uh, a certain kind of uh, prejudice against the working class, especially about sort of young children who were beggars or were thieves thinking like oh they were just born this way they're evil Mm -hmm. and him sort of saying no this is what they're reduced to because of how we don't uh, give them a chance to do anything. Mm-hmm. And also saying, hey, by the way, child labor's fucked up. Maybe yep. stop doing it. Um, whereas everyone in London's like, what are you talking about? It's like, it's it's good for them. And Children he's like, don't have rights. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, this six-year-old shouldn't be uh, doing hard labor. Just saying. The only thing about it that really rubs me the wrong way mm-hmm. is the character of Fagin, which in narration, he always refers to as the Jew. Yeah, the anti-Semitism in Dickinson's work is, even outside of Oliver Twist, Mm. it's a deep-seated thing. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Even if Fagin is technically based off of a real person, or so that's the legend that goes that is inspired of a real person. I'm like, even Nancy, sometimes we'll call her Nancy, sometimes we'll call her the girl, but like, she gets to be both, Bill Sykes gets to be both Mm -hmm. Bill or Mr. Sykes or the gentleman. Fagin is always the Jew. Yeah, he's never Fagin or the leader... Once or twice, the elder. Maybe, maybe once or twice he'll be like the old gentleman, but like mm-hmm. we're talking like two or three times in a four hundred page novel. Yeah. Uh, so no, it's not cute. But this is all to say, uh, the novel had many uh, film adaptations leading up to nineteen sixty. Uh, the most famous one was in nineteen forty eight, directed by David Lean. Mm. Alec Guinness was Fagin, and that's sort of the most um, infamous one because Alec Guinness's portrayal of Fagin drew a lot of um, protests from the Jewish community because a very he did a very large prosthetic nose, mm-hmm. did a lot of, um, uh, we're still looking for, stereotypical actions. Ironically, the movie was banned in both Israel and Egypt because Israel was like, this is anti-Semitic, and Egypt was like, this is far too sympathetic to Fagin. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> That's all you need to know. Yeah, woof. Yeah. Uh, so Lionel Bart, how much about Lionel Bart do you know? I know a fair amount. He okay. wrote a show called Maggie May in 1964, which was mm. my father's nickname for me when I was a child. And so I zeroed in on that show as oh. a kid. That and the Rod Stewart song, Maggie May. Wait, so did your father nickname you that based off of the show or the Rod Stewart song or just no, in general? Uh, Irish family, Margaret's oh. are automatically called Maggie's and Maggie May's an easy thing to follow it with. Mm-hmm. Okay. I was about to say, like, that's a deep cut from your father if you were to do that. So my father is responsible for a lot of my musical theater love, Mm -hmm. but I don't think even he was that conscious of this kind of a flop Lionel Bart musical about a Liverpoolian prostitute. I mean, most people aren't familiar with Lionel Bart's work post-Oliver, and we'll get into all that. Yeah. Um, He was relatively successful before Oliver. Mm -hmm. He, um... Had a career as a songwriter. He wrote for the Unity Theater, which was a London theater club. He wrote for a radio program called The Billy Cotton Show. He wrote some English pantomimes. Uh, his most major successes pre-Oliver were as a pop writer. Mm-hmm. He um, had a couple of big pop songs. And he had two musicals. One was called Lock Up Your Daughters, <laughs> which ran about a year. Based off of the uh, 18th century play, 
Rape Upon Rape. What a title. What a title. Good thing he changed it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they tried to get it to open in America with Alfred Drake. They did like an out-of-town tryout and yeah. it closed on the road because they were like, oh, Americans will hate this. Yeah, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. Well, because up until now, and it's important we talk about this with Oliver and we talk about sort of the success of it, I sort of was figuring out exactly what was the show I wanted to have start this mm-hmm. series. Because technically, Oliver is not the first British import. It's not even the first British, British-born British musical to come to the States. But it is sort of the beginning of the British invasion as we know it. Yes. Um, because there was the boyfriend before Oliver, but the boyfriend wasn't a direct replica of what was in London. It had American producers, and one of the producers directed it because they knew that if they put up on stage exactly how it was in London, American audiences wouldn't totally get it. It was a very British show, so they Americanized it a bit. So Bart, famously, could not read music. Irving Berlin, UK edition. mm -hmm. He would sing the songs as he imagined them into a recorder, and then Eric Rogers would notate it. Mm-hmm. That is what I came, or transcribed it. That's what I came to understand. He really followed in sort of a tradition of musical theater composers who actually couldn't read music, which is kind of hysterical. The musical theater essentially comes from four art forms. It comes from burlesque, it comes from minstrelsy, it comes from vaudeville, and it comes from operetta. Operetta was pretty staunchly British, and vaudeville was essentially an American music hall tradition. And if you look at something like Tin Pan Alley, which is where a lot of the early musical theater composers come from, I threw out a joke about Irving Berlin, but there's a number of them. It's very music hall-esque in the way that they worked. And Bart was very, very like those Tin Pan Alley composers in how he structured his work. His work was structured to basically be in your ear the moment you walked out. Because the way that Tin Pan Alley composers worked, in days where you're not selling vinyls, you're not streaming a cast album, you're probably not even recording a cast album, people need to be able to remember the song in their head to then go to a music store the next day and buy a piece of sheet music. And Lionel Bart functions in the same sort of way. Anyone who's ever listened to Food Glorious Food can probably sing the chorus by the end of the song. Mm -hmm. And that's a big part of why I think Oliver worked as the first big structure, is because it was kind of speaking the same language as the foundation of musical theater. And also, in talking about someone like Gilbert and Sullivan, that sort of tradition is embedded in the musical theater, even though we think of the musical theater as an American art form. And by the time we reach the 1960s, people who would have been in their teens or so during the height of the Tin Pan Alley days in the teens and 20s were in sort of the older, moneyed era. And producers love to produce things that make them feel nostalgic typically, especially when you get into that age range. And so Oliver was able to sort of zero in on that and get in the door. And then also it was a show for kids, which if you know anything about the musical theater in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, there weren't a ton of roles for children or shows structured for children. Mm -hmm. You're likely not going to be taking your eight-year-old to go and see Oklahoma. It just probably isn't going to happen. Not every family is our family. Yes, true. Um, And Oliver gave a show that people could bring kids to, and then kids become deeply loyal to the show. mm -hmm. And that 
creates almost like a generation of people who become really sort of cottoned on to it. And we've seen it happen with kids shows since, but nowadays we're associated with like, we have things like Disney and companies like that, where there are shows for kids running almost every season. It used to be Oliver was kind of the only one you had. Yeah. And we're going to get into that a bit um, when we sort of discuss the aftermath of when it came to Broadway, because there's an interesting fact about Oliver right before it closed its Broadway run Mm. that um, I think is really cool uh also i just want to say guys um for those of you realizing that after this episode you're going to be stuck with me and that margaret's not going to be anymore (laughs) i'm really really sorry because margaret is much more eloquent than i am knows so much i am saying um in like every five seconds and everyone's going oh fuck that's right we're stuck with matt for 13 more of these or how many ever more i'm doing margaret does not stick around crap If you're ever looking to find me, I'm Stardust's child on just about every single platform. (laughs) Stardust's child. With an S. S S-T-A-R-D-U-S-T-S-C-H-I-L-D. As in the Neil Gaiman book, Stardust? As in my favorite poem. Okay. okay. Fuck my drag. So. <laughs> oh, you're fine. You're fine. First of all, Gaiman is cool, everybody. He's not oh, I like. I love Gaiman. I'm, I'm just, I'm being silly. It's a, you called me average uh, 10 minutes ago. And so now we're just, we're going with <laughs> oh, that Oh, so it's, okay. We got a battle of wills. That's what we got going. No, oh, no, no battle of wills. You're steamrolling over me. <laughs> Everyone is listening to me just get pillaged right now. It's fine. Oh, you are fine. Lionel Bart. Uh, decided he wanted to write... Oh, wait. Yes. Actually, I have one other thing to say about oh, Lionel shit, Bart that's thing. important. Okay. Lionel Bart is a Jewish man. Yes, he is. He's Jewish. He's gay. Although he doesn't really come out publicly. He comes out pretty late in his life. He was yeah. kind of sort of dating Judy Garland when the show was coming to Broadway. Not really. In, in the same way that a lot of Judy's friends were kind of sort of dating her, I... I personally believe that Judy was aware that a lot of her friends were Mm -hmm. gay and was willing to be a beard to keep them... Especially in that part of her life when she was sort of like... She was over, you know, being married necessarily. Mm. She had sort of come off as it loved and the whole Star is Born situation. She had her kids. She wasn't really chasing the romance thing in the same way that she was earlier in her life. No. And also Lionel Bart was rumored to be her manager for short periods. Mm. She... she was definitely taken care of by him in some capacity for a short time. Mm-hmm. But I think it really is important to think about the fact that Lionel Bart is a Jewish man who was also an immigrant mm-hmm. who was taking this story that was very intrinsic to British culture at the time and to this day. Mm-hmm. Dickens is a huge cultural icon over there. And mm-hmm. Oliver Twist is a touchstone. It's one, yeah, it's one of the big ones. Yeah. Yes. And he's taking the story that deeply is anti-Semitic when you read it. And rebirthing it in a way that's really quite fascinating. And I wish that I could, like, seance my way into a conversation with him to talk about why this is the one he picked. What drew him to making this a show. There's something about Oliver that I feel like I get why he would gravitate towards it in a lot of ways. Because it's not as epic of a story as, say, like, Tale of Two Cities. Mm -hmm. it, um, It doesn't cover as much time. It's a rel- It's actually a relatively small story. It's only a few characters. The most complex thing is sort of uh, Oliver's lineage, which yeah, the music so impossible. And the musical's like, fuck it, he's the grandson. Like, no, fuck it, he's the grandson. But also in the second act, they're just like, and he's gotta go back to Fagin for some reason. Okay, he's fine. He's safe. It's done. Yeah. Well, I mean, the book is kind of like that too. It just sort of prolongs the being back with Fagin and Sykes mm-hmm. thing. It's like, no, we gotta take him back because there's gotta be conflict. And it's like, why? It's like, it's, yeah. he might, because things. And, and the intermission is perfectly placed. So you assume that all of the figuring out who his mother is just kind of happens in there. Yeah. 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 It's, 
It's interesting. I will say when the first moment that you realize that Oliver might be related to Brownlow happens in the movie with the zoom in on the portrait, Mm -hmm. my mom went, no, like (laughs) she wasn't expecting it. She wasn't expecting it. And I turned to her and I go, is that a good or bad note? She's like, I don't even know. She's like, I, I think it's good. She's like, I just wasn't expecting it. But her reaction was just, no. Like, yeah, I love that she immediately just like, I'm shutting this down. No, she wasn't even shutting it down. Like, I think she was taken by surprise. Then she was like, do I even want this? Mm. And then by when the movie ended and he kind of went through all that shit, she's like, I don't care. Let him be happy. But, just let him go to a yeah. family, please. Yes. Um, don't throw him off a roof. Uh-huh. Poor Oliver. He didn't deserve to be put on a roof. Truly did not. All, Oliver is the like extreme archetype of like, can someone please get this child? Yeah. Like in every single scene, it's like, can someone please just and, take him? And the book is even more so because like in the movie and in the show. Yeah. We'll get there. So, we'll get there. <laughs> so Lionel Bart had all these same thoughts as we did, <laughs> and he's like, I'm gonna make a musical of this. Um, and what's ironic is I was watching. They did a documentary, I guess, when the show was having its 90s revival, and mm-hmm. they were interviewing Lionel Bart, and he was saying how the producer of it didn't believe in the show and was telling all the actors before they opened, you might want to look for new work. And I was like, I mean, I guess, but also, like, you had, from what I read, you had no real issues getting money to do this. It didn't seem, like, it wasn't as uh, rough as other roads to uh, the West End. One thing with Lionel Bart, especially when talking about interviews he gave toward the end of his life, because mm-hmm. he did die in 1999. So when the 94 revival came around, he was yeah. reaching the end. He also, and we'll get to talk about this more in the, with the legacy, Oliver is the peak of his career. Yes, and, it and he had a very complicated relationship with those producers. I'm sure yeah. we'll talk about what he had to yes. do in terms of rights. Mm-hmm. And to me, I say, take it with just a pinch of salt because I think a lot of creatives like to position themselves as having overcome something to Mm. make their art and especially when it's someone like Lionel Bart who went through a lot after Mm -hmm. Oliver opened I think having this story of victory in his mind even if he fully believed it is something that almost is more psychological than factual Mm -hmm. where yes I'm sure maybe there was like an offhand comment to like one of the girls, because there's only really one female role in the show. That, yeah. Might have been like, hey, if you can get, like, a larger role that isn't basically just dancing in the corner. I mean, yeah, it's really just, it's Bet and then everyone else's background as far as I'm concerned. Oh. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Bet, what a useless role she is. Anyway. Hey, hey, are, no. we, are we talking about the sequel? Are we going to talk about the sequel? The sequel? Do you not know about the sequel to Oliver? Oh my god, so. okay, we're talking about this at the end Is of the episode. Bet's Revenge? <laughs> no, Artful Dodger falls in love with Bet. Oh my god. Oh my god. That you don't re- know about that this? That is some Reddit fan fiction right here. No, keep going, ah! keep going, keep going. Okay, keep going. wait, here. Oh my god. Oh my god. Blowing my mind. Put a pin in that. We will come back to this. Listeners and I are on the edge of our seats. Oh my god. You want me to just go? Just, no, just go, say what you're going to say about Bart and his things and the things. Oh yes, so <laughs> Bart in general, I think... Yes, there might have been, but there, there, that happens on every single show. I can tell you with almost every Sondheim show, including the ones where they're like, this is gonna be a big artistic success, people ended up kind of jumping ship. A, because some roles pay better than others based mm-hmm. on size, 
And then also, there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily as concerned with the success of the show in general as their personal success. And if you're playing sort of a bit role in Oliver, which you think is going to be a decent-sized hit, you don't think it's going to be, like, a the mega show. Yeah. And you compare that to, oh, I can be in this show, or I can be in sort of a middling show, but I get to be the best thing in the show. Yeah. There's a lot of people's egos that will drift them towards that. And I think, essentially, with Bart and that statement, just take it with a grain of salt, because so much happens behind the scenes, and people also love to position themselves as the wronged one in situations, especially when you go through what Bart went through. Mm -hmm. We talked about that a lot when we first met. There are some people in the industry who have made very public stories about their careers and their shows, and you and I kind of bonded as... Uh, theater friends by going like listen everyone has their perspective and the truth is sort of somewhere in the middle between what he said and he said and she said and she said absolutely Um, and that's why i love my work as a biographer and a memoirist mm -hmm. because to me facts matter obviously Mm -hmm. but i also think personal perspective also really matters in terms of understanding how the facts come to be Mm mm-hmm And one of the things that I'm very grateful for, this is kind of a tangent, Alvin Ng passed away on the 31st. And Alvin is someone that I became close with this spring, involved both with Jim and Yanni and also in writing a profile on his life. And I'm deeply grateful that I wrote that because we never would have had his personal side of the story. We'd have the facts of he's performed in Flower Dome Song more than any other human being. He made his Broadway debut in Pacific Overtures, which was written for him. And And did the revival as well. Yeah, you'd have those bullet points. But having his perspective on things, even though they are his perspective, they aren't necessarily, like, fact-checkable primary sources, Mm -hmm. I find deeply, deeply valuable. And in talking about what we're talking about with Lionel and also with the other person that we are choosing not to name, Mm -hmm. I think it's really important to get that on paper. But I think it's important for consumers of those mediums, especially autobiography and memoir. Biography is a bit more objective Memoir and autobiography, there's a reason they're writing their side of the story. Uh It is very rare that they are writing out of the goodness of their heart to answer questions for their fans. It is typically because they want their side of the story to be the one that's public and referenced as the truth. Uh And that's just inherently a human thing. That I'm not saying I'm better than people who do that. I'm not saying I'm worse either. I'm saying it's a human trait. If you've ever talked to, say, your best friend and you give them your side of, like, a fight you're having with a mutual acquaintance and then they hear from the other person, they're like, okay, well, it's somewhere in the middle. That's just life. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) back to fucking Oliver. Ah, Um, come on. Come on, Oliver. The show had its world premiere at the Wimbledon Theater. Mm -hmm. Bart did actually have some trouble finding investors for a second because a lot of people were unsure how you could take what was essentially a pretty dark, comedic, but dark novel and turn it into a family-friendly entertainment, which is yeah. what Bart wanted to do Because, again, it. there wasn't really a ton of family-friendly musicals. There was pantos. Yes, and this is a musical that has two dead bodies, uh, opens with child labor, you put your main character in a coffin for a little bit, who is a full-blown child. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not... The humor in both the novel and the show of Oliver is pretty dark- Oliver Twisted humor. Yeah. Uh, and Oliver Twist the book was not marketed as a children's book. It was marketed no. to be read by adults. Yeah. And Oliver the Musical, at the very least, there was going to be at least 30 kids who were going to see it because they were in it. Yes. So, and we'll go more about this in a bit. I love to say that on the podcast. I love to be like, we're going to cover, we're going to cover, but I swear <laughs> we will, I swear. Uh, so it opened at the Wilbleton Theater in 1960 before transferring to the new theater, which is now the Noel Coward Theater. It's where Dear Evan Hansen uh, will be playing when it reopens. Mm. 
it was a huge hit. We're talking, so this was um, when American musical theater really kind of set the staple of like what musicals were and, and sort of setting the narrative of like, we do this better than anyone. And up until 1960, that kind of felt like the case because all British it was just accepted musicals. that the best musicals could only come out of America, essentially. Yes. But so Oliver was sort of the first time where the West End was like, okay, we got one of our own that can really kind of go against the big guns. And it's we think it's really good. We yeah. like it a lot. And it's also based off of a novel that everybody knows and loves. So it just was the kind of synergy that Everyone really rallied around the show. Yes. And it ran for over 2,600 performances. Mm-hmm. It was a hot, hot ticket. And then enter one David Merrick. The Abominable Showman. David Merrick was getting wind of uh, Europe coming up with their own musicals and would constantly come over Mm -hmm. to see whatever the big hits were in either London or in Paris. There was a new coast for him to conquer. Yes. uh, Because if if there was any chance that they could be good, he wanted to be the first one to get it. And so... Before Oliver, he had another import, uh, Irma LaDuce, uh, <laughs> La Plume de Matante. Um, yeah, I know, look at me. La Pluma was not a hit. Uh, yeah. Irma was, but it was like, you know, a sensible hit. It was, yep. you know, it came Irma here, was it a hit fine. in that the people of that season knew it, but it's being done at encores now if it's done. There's not yes. going to be a big revival of Irma LaDuce. And also because the movie version of Irma, there were no, they cut out all the songs. They yeah. just did They just did the plot. They forumed it. Yeah, pretty much. Um, they actually know what they did was they fannied it. Ah! Anyone who knows what we were just saying there, deep cut, we know, we know, we know. Inside baseball. Yes. But so Merrick took it. And what Merrick did was basically said, like, I'm going to do this show as it is because this works so well. And part of the charm is exactly how it's done. Yeah, It was a direct transfer, which was really quite rare at the time. Yes. Especially for a musical. There were, at this time, there were some plays that were doing this. Um, The most uh, notable, I think, uh, no, sorry. The most notable is going to be coming, uh, I think, in two seasons, which is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Mm, dead. Yeah, yeah. Which is another kind of transfer, but yes, Oliver was sort of the be- was the beginning of this, like bringing something over exactly as it was, and uh, the design and the staging being synonymous with the show. Yes, and the idea that Merrick had to pick a house that was very, very similar to the Wimbledon's layout, mm-hmm. so that the set could pretty much directly transfer. Nowadays, things like theater placement, it's talked about more. Most fans didn't think about that back no. in the day. Of like, you had to fit. Well, and. On top of that, you can see when shows would transfer from theater to theater all the time so quickly, it's because the sets are basically like, yeah, it's a couple of backdrops. You make it you make it work. The fact that My Fair Lady went into the Broadhurst for a month before it then went into the Schubert and then into the Broadway towards the end of its yeah. run, like just goes to show you how Vastly little Vastly different size theaters. Yes. And then also you got something like Cabaret, which was just being pinged around. Oh yeah, going from the Broadhurst to the Imperial to the Broadway and all this other crazy stuff. But so Oliver... It was very important to Merrick that it be that show. But he also wanted to sort of test it with American audiences mm-hmm. before it came to Broadway to see what was landing and what wasn't, if there were any things to tweak. Uh, specifically because the show, a lot of its humor does come from a dark place of adults being really cruel to children. Deeply. Which the English seem to love. I think it's one of those things where they grow up with Dickinson's stories mm-hmm. that it becomes kind of... 
I'm looking at your Harry Potter books, yep. and so it's got me thinking about Harry Potter, of this whole idea of, like, a child is abused and overcomes that abuse is weirdly a part of narrative over there in the way that it isn't necessarily over here, although we do have our stories. Yes, well, and then also because the villains in those stories are never really meant to be an ultimate evil. They're more kind of idiots in a yes. way. So it's farcical. Yes, and it has that panto feel to it. So it's why Trunchbull is played by Amanda Matilda. It both makes Trunchbull otherworldly, but also um, less frightening because in, as an audience, we can recognize that it's not real yes um and then also the Tenardiers and Les Mis and how they treat little Cosette they're, the, they're clownish yes very much so um and that is up for debate about how much you enjoy that point <laughs> is uh Merrick decides they're going to do a 12 week out of town tour they're going to open in Los Angeles which you did not do at the time never did never did LA was not a theater town and then they went to San Francisco after that uh, recorded the cast album while they were in Los Angeles, released it before they even brought it to Broadway. And while Merrick said, oh, this is just to make sure that uh, it plays for American audiences well, what it really was doing was building a buzz for Broadway, recording the cast album so they could start selling it, and then also seeing how much of the budget they could recoup before they even made it to Broadway, which ended up being the entire investment. Which is they, amazing. They recouped their entire investment in that 12-week run, so they came to Broadway already ahead. And there's another show he does this with to um, the same general effect, although it had about a tenth of the run of Oliver, and we'll discuss that mm. for a second in the history. But it opens at the Imperial Theater. Uh, there were a couple of uh, issues at first. They There was first the issue of casting. Uh, it opened on the West End with Ron Moody and Georgia Brown. Ron Moody was not brought over to America. I'm not entirely sure why. <sighs> I don't know entirely why, but knowing actors' equity as I do at the time, almost certainly it's because they wanted it to be an American actor and they wouldn't give Merrick permission. Maybe. Uh, it might, because Georgia Brown did come over. It might have been one of those, like, you can have two, you yeah, can have one pick, kind of Pick thing. who you want to do. Yeah, exactly. And as much as I love Georgia Brown, I personally would have kept Ron Moody because I think he's yes. remarkable. Yes. He, well, and we'll discuss that as we discuss the show. Uh, Clive Revel did it instead, and Clive Revel had gotten a Tony nomination for Irma LaDuce the season before. So Merrick's like, yeah, fine. This guy that I had in my last show who did really well, we'll make him our Fagan. Uh, fun fact, the Oliver in this, uh, his name is uh, Bruce something or other, Bruce Prochnik. Mm. Uh, he was a replacement Oliver on the West End, was 13, about to turn 14 oh when they God, did it. Oh my God, he's old for Oliver. Well, so in the novel, Oliver is um, supposed to be 11. And oh. then on the, and then in the original libretto, they have him as 13 to justify why the kid was so tall. Ah. But then I think he only did it for like six months on Broadway and then he got replaced by a child half his size. Yeah, I'm used to being like eight-year-olds. Yeah, it's usually little kids. Well, because then Mark Lester did the movie and in the movie they make him nine. Yeah, and, and now all of the Olivers are little blonde boys. Yes. Well, because Mark Lester had the face of an angel, and you just—he was—he was a pure Botticelli little baby. My mom, my mom would not stop talking about his face when we were watching the movie. She was like, "Look at that face!" I'm like, I know. "I'm aware." You just want to protect him. I know. Anyway, that's, uh, <laughs> God, we're coming so off topic. Um, a fun fact that I was reading, uh, or actually, I was listening to uh, the music director for it, Don Pippen. Yeah. Yes, he was saying in an interview how they got to the Imperial and the. Uh, orchestra pit for the Imperial Theater was relatively shallow at mm. the time. And so the orchestra's heads were kind of popping up a bit because orchestras used to be a lot higher. Oh, much, much higher than they, they got, are now. Yes, they got, they got lower and lower as the years went on. Now they're just in a hole in the yes. ground. Well, especially now that we have, you know, amplification. But when they, when that wasn't the case, they basically were like on this, on the floor of the mm. audience. 
one of the reasons front row tickets didn't used to be as sort of prized is because you had to look through the audience. One yeah. of the, like box seats were a big deal for a number of reasons, but it also was, especially if you're going to something like the opera or early mm. musical theater, you can actually see everything. Yeah. Also, box seats, you could be seen, which is why yes. they were so yeah, that's exclusive back in the day. All the class stuff. Um, <laughs> class. So, Merrick insisted that they uh, dig out the orchestra pit, <laughs> like, the week before the show. Which, if you know anything about Broadway theaters, is akin to asking for Jesus Christ to just, like, come down and pat you on the head. Mm-hmm. And so they were able to get it done, but it was super uneven. Yeah. And Pippin was like, the music stands are barely standing Doink. up straight. Yeah, it's like, we need something. Like, either we need to get this, um, like, dug better or or whatever. And Merrick's like, we don't have enough time to get it dug yeah, again. Yeah, because especially... you're. You're trying to lower the foundation of a part of the theater while not damaging the rest of the foundation. Mm-hmm. And also on the island of Manhattan, especially where this theater is, you're hitting bedrock pretty quick. Yeah. What they ended up doing was they put a platform on the part uh, that was, I think, dug too deep. Wooden platforms fix most things. Mm-hmm. And uh, Pippin uh, would st- uh, was standing on top of the orchestra, and it was like the last preview before they opened. And Merrick's like, no, 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 you, you have to be shorter. And he's like, I can't be shorter. My, my, uh, no, no, no. He's either said it had to be shorter or it had to be taller. I don't remember what it was. But essentially, Pippin then wore, like, platforms in his shoes. <laughs> um, and then at opening night, like, stood, like, four inches taller than Merrick. And Merrick basically, like, never bothered him again after that day. Because yeah. he was like, I never realized how tall you were. It's and like, Pippin, wait a second. Pippin's like, oh, yeah, sure, I'm that tall. Uh, the fun fact about Oliver, by the way, is that it came, opened during a newspaper strike. Mm. So none of the reviews came out at the time. Uh, they were not released until, like, four months later. Uh, the only review that was released was on the radio from a guest critic who said it was the best musical ever. That guest critic was David Merrick. Ah! But it was a big hit. Uh, we will go into a bit more of that in a second. Now let's talk about Oliver itself. Okay. Maggie Mae, mm. what is Oliver about? Great question. It really sort of depends on what character you're looking at it through, but it's essentially about a young boy who's been given the name of Oliver Twist going from a working house to basically a funeral parlor. Yeah, a a funeral parlor. Yeah, to taking up with, I guess would be the term, with a group of child thieves and their keeper of sorts, Fagin. Mm -hmm. And then he complicatedly finds his way back to his birth family and the woman who had become his pseudo mother in the crime syndicate dies because of it yes um that's pretty that's pretty solid good on you (laughs) um yeah it's not an easy one to linearly describe yeah i mean because it's there's no, like, overall plot to Oliver. It's not like the show begins and Oliver is like, I will find my family. No, there, there is no I want song in Oliver. The closest we have is Where is Love, but it's not even an I want song. It's just, like, a general searching question. He's yeah. like, does this thing even exist? It's like, is love a thing? Which he sings. Should I want more? I mean, he sings it among the coffins. I so. know! <laughs> so, uh. so when I was posting about the movie last night, a lot of people are like, yeah, I guess that movie's pretty good. It's been a while since I've seen it. Like, it's pretty cute. I'm like, you are selectively remembering, like, moments of this movie. Yeah. Because the movie opens with child labor. No, Oliver's very dark. It's very dark. Um, He sings Where is Love Among Coffins. It ends with two dead bodies. Like, it's, there's a lot of dark shit in you it. You literally watch a woman be beat to death. Mm-hmm. Which is done much better in the movie than it's done in the stage show. The oh, stage by show. far, by far. Yeah. Uh, the, the whole Nancy and Bill Sykes is 
deeply, deeply better in the film. Yes. Well, okay. So pseudo mother is Nancy. Yes. Uh, who we learn it, very rushed in the show, but you do know that she is connected to all of them because she was once a child pickpocket thief. She for was Fagan. like the one girl that Fagin kept yes. around. And I guess Bill was like his protege, and then now Bill to become- was. I think it was sort of like, and this is me trying to string together things. They never really explicitly state anything. But Bill was basically, like, the Artful Dodger from a decade ago. Yeah. And then Nancy was kind of the Oliver of... She came in, she was from, I believe, a poor Irish family, Mm -hmm. and gets brought in. And then they start dating, and they're, like, together in an abusive relationship. Mm -hmm. And they're sort of the people Fagin point to of, like, you can have a life if you stick with me, Mm -hmm. because look at Bill. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and in the novel, I believe Nancy is a prostitute. She grows up to become a prostitute. That would make sense. Yes. Be- and also, it, it so in the novel, she and Bet, her best friend, they are of the same age. They are about 17 or 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we meet them very briefly in the novel when Oliver goes with Dar- uh, Artful Dodger out on a job. So the way that like Oliver gets wrapped up in all this is... Obviously, the show opens, and he's in the workhouse, and all the kids are fed gruel. <laughs> they don't get anything else. They just get gruel, and gruel is essentially, like, shitty oatmeal. Yeah. Um, Super watery, not-flavored oatmeal. Yes. Because oats, you know, more or less have a decent amount of nutrients in It'll them. It'll keep the kids alive. Yeah, exactly. It's enough to, like, keep you going, but it's not really enough to actually, No one's like, craving that. Exactly. Especially if you don't add anything to it, if it's, like, 40% water. Ugh. It's, yeah, it's just not good. And Oliver draws the... Uh, short, shortest straw or the longest straw. I can't remember which. I think it's shortest. Shortest. Basically, the, the boys decide to like you know have a sacrificial lamb go to slaughter and go up to Mr. Bumble and ask for more. Ask for a second helping, which is the most famous line in Oliver, and it's Aww. in the novel, it's in the show, it's in the movie. Please, sir, I want some more. More. <laughs> And he then is sold to an undertaker in the town because basically the board of governors are like, this kid wants more. Get rid of him. Mm-hmm. Just get rid of him. Which also, can we pause to say that this is now the second Beatle in musical theater history to be messing around with a young child and like with who they live with? Because we also then have Beatle Bamford and Sweeney Todd and Mr. Bumble is a Beatle in the book. He is a beetle. Wait, who does Mr. Who does the beetle Bamford mess around with in Sweeney Joanna. Todd? He doesn't he, mess around with her. No, not, not mess around sexually. He's the reason that Joanna ends up in the judge's care. He's the one who brings Joanna and Lucy to the house, well, and then yeah, Lucy's raped. Well, well, brings Lucy to the house, and then Lucy is raped, and then swallows the poison, and then brings Joanna out of there into the yes. judge's care. Yes, yes, yes. Well, just, it's very interesting to me that... because. For listeners who aren't aware, a beetle, B-E-A-D-L-E, is a very specific position in, like, British law. And it's just very funny to me that this, like, hyper-specific position keeps coming up. Mm. And it's... I also am kind of obsessed with Mr. Bumble and Widow Corny. I find them very funny. They are funny. You're forgetting the third beetle in musical theater. Hmm? Beetlejuice. Oh, pa! <laughs> Glory 
so, 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 Oliver asks for more. He gets sold to an undertaker. They have the song, That's Your Funeral. Uh, Great song. Absolute certified it's, bop. It's, it is a certified bop. I will say I like that it is done to a jaunty uh, tempo. Because when we did it at the middle school, for some, I like kept on asking our the music teacher who is the music director. Mm-hmm. I kept asking her. I was like, "Can we please pick this up?" So and, many regional productions. It's like a snail's pace. Yeah, I'm like, well, it's supposed to be like a funeral march. I'm like, the joke is how like yeah, the whole thing is like, like about, yeah. Yeah. but it's death. It's very Adam's family. Yeah, and um, I didn't write. I actually wrote like a little thing about it. what did I said. Um, I said it's sort of like a little Tenardier, which it is, oh. but honestly, it's like Tenardier meets Adam's family in its own yeah. way. But there's also another song that we skipped because it's cut in the movie. It's I Shall Scream, which is Mr. Bumble and uh, uh, Widow Corny. Which, can we appreciate the single soprano representation <laughs> in the show? Yeah. And she gets like a little high note at the end, and that's... Well, it's her, it's a lot of chest, and then she flips on up there. Mm-hmm. And it's great work for a character actress. It all These songs work in this stage show, because with a stage show, you are allowed to have a bit more time to stop to sing. Uh, the way I sort of discussed it when doing a musical on stage and a musical in a film is how different audiences are willing to accept it. Mm-hmm. Like in a stage show, audiences are like, if I'm going to spend time with this character, I'm going to need a song to establish who they are and what they're about. And then in a movie, it's like, if I'm going to have a, listen to a song about a character singing what they're about, I'm going to need to spend a little bit more time with yeah. them first. And one of the things that's hard in musical theater in general, but especially in musical films Clowning villains kind of just are. Mm-hmm. You don't really need a reason. And, and even then, I Shall Scream, it's not like giving you like the deep internal thoughts of them. No, and you also, for something like Oliver, where there isn't a lot of plot plot, and like the mm-hmm. most true, like the most action really happens in the middle. You want to try to get there as soon as possible. And the movie is, uh, the movie's mentality is like, Let's spend more time expanding on the characters that are important to that third act than the yes. characters who aren't. So let's get Oliver to London as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. So we cut I Shall Scream. We cut That's Your Funeral. Again, they bop on stage. They wouldn't bop so much in the film. Plus, like, Corny and uh, Bumble get the title song in the movie. Yeah. Which they do a good-ass job they with. They do great. And they include the children, which I really like. Because oh, it allows this, it. it gives the song a bit more heft. And you can see the kids are having so much fun in mm-hmm. the background. And the music direction in the movie is... is on fucking fleek. It's very well mixed. It's well mixed. Uh, it's it's And they do a really good job of sort of keeping on your toes. Because Oliver, the song itself, doesn't have any kind of build to it. It's no. Supposed, it's, it's a sort it's of... It's just Oliva. Uh, yeah. Oliva. Never, never, never before has a boy wanted more. more. It's, it's very just that ro- on loop. On loop, yes. It's very roly-poly Oli. <laughs> and... Not the reference I thought I was going to hear today. <laughs> Strap in. Oliva, Oliva, never before has a boy wanted more. Oliva, Oliva... Just for more when he knows what's in store. There's a dark, thin, winding stairway without any baddies, which we throw him down. But yes, uh, Oliver goes to the Undertaker. He's made a coffin follower for <laughs> children's funerals, which is he's basically a professional mourner. Yeah, he. <laughs> Which sounds crazy. Have you ever watched the TV show Happy Endings? No. Are you aware of it? 
Not really. It's they basically are kind of like a weirder version of friends. Okay. Um, six friends. One of them is um, sort of a gay slacker, and they one of the jokes they make at one point is how like this character has like come up with a lot of jobs over the years <laughs> that aren't really jobs. So one was like funeral seat filler, and you see him at the funeral like being like, "Oh, Dave, Dave, Dave," and they're like. <clears throat> Oh, right. Kevin, Kevin, Kevin. And he's like uh, crying. And I'm like, but that's sort of what Oliver was yeah, kind of. paid to do. Not and paid. That, that was absolutely a position in Victorian England as mm-hmm. well. Professional mourners were a huge thing. There were things called wailing women where you'd be hired to go and make a scene at the funeral mm-hmm. because it wouldn't necessarily be proper for the widow to make a scene, but she could hire someone who makes the scene on her behalf sort of thing. Yeah. And there's a great line that I love that they... The movie's really smart to cut off right at this line and cut to the image because it's just a good joke. And it's in the book, too. When Oliver gets sold and the Undertaker's like, oh, I act like... Because first they were like, oh, we'll hire him to like help around the um, the place, even though he's scrawny. And then the Undertaker's like, hold on a second. He'd be a good funeral uh, coffin follower. Like, look at that sad little face. It's like, Sharp cut. Yep. Yeah. And, then, and, then the, and then his wife's like, oh, you're... You know what? You might be right. Yeah. And she's like, look at that portrait of that guy walking in front of the coffin there. Could you look like him? And the co- is like all in coats and tails. And Ovalor just looks at it and goes, I had a big tall hat. Yeah. And, then, and they cut to it. So good. <laughs> and they cut to him looking like that. It's so oh. good. Um, yeah. The, so the musical streamlines a lot of this as well. Because... Um, first Oliver is almost sold to someone else in the novel mm-hmm. and then that doesn't happen and Oliver has a friend from the uh, from the workhouse that is dying that he like yeah sees. they really cut down the workhouse stuff yeah all the workhouse stuff uh, the, everything before the Undertaker he's also working for the Undertaker for a while whereas in the musical he's there for like a solid 12 hours before he's kicked out if that yeah <laughs> he basically he's purchased that day he sleeps the night among the coffins sings where is love and all the boy sopranos of the world went I'm fine finally seen representation it matters and then stupid fuckboy noah claypole comes <laughs> on in the best useless character so useless he's just there to give oliver a reason to run away yeah literally the only reason he's there he just comes in and he's like your mother was a whore and oliver's like fuck you douche and jumps on him and everyone's like oh my god what's wrong and mr bomb was like well clearly you fed him some meat yeah because how dare you make him strong enough to fight back literally literally and they put it they stuff him in a coffin and sit on the lid to sort of like hold him down it's craziness it's craziness so much ah ah and then oliver runs off to london and he Which meets, also, I love that the musical never really explains how he gets to London. He the musical says he, they says he walked for seven days. Well, I know, but I fully... It, no, it's not true. <laughs> well, and so, okay. Again, the novel, what happens is, like, a woman takes... Basically, no, Oliver keeps on staying alive in the novel because someone takes... He has a homeward him. bound style journey. Yes. It's like, every, when all seems lost, there's, like, one person who's, who's like, the one good adult mm-hmm. out of a hundred... To quote Lady Gaga, you could be in a room of 100 people, Ugh. 99 don't believe in you. You just need the one. Thank you, Bradley Cooper. Oliver just needed the one person to not be an awful human being. No, but it's so yeah. funny to be there. They're like, he walked for seven days. And I'm like, and no one noticed this child. No one. Well, and the movie tries to kind of explain that too, because he doesn't walk the entire way, but you do see him walking and he's like trying to hitch a Jump ride. in a cart. And and, stuff. Well, yeah, he's trying to hitch a ride and everyone's like, don't ignore that child. <laughs> ignore him. It's so And then funny. He, he hitches a ride to a wagon. And then the novel, a woman's like, takes pity on him and allows him into her and wagon. And I love that once he gets to London and he meets Artful Dodger, 
Dutcher does not question that he just walks for seven days. Yeah. He's just like, yeah, that's normal behavior. Yeah, he's like, I probably would have done the same. Yeah, so he com- yeah he comes across Artful Dodger, which played by Davy Jones, by the way, on Broadway, mm-hmm. who's not on the cast album. So don't go looking for his voice on that. He uh. he replaced the Artful Dodger out of town. Um, Artful Dodger is one of those roles that just like always hits. When I told my mom that Jack Wilde was nominated for an Oscar for it, she was like, "He was." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Oh, Dodger usually gets nominated." Yeah, like, no, Dodger is one of those. It's like a featured kids role that people eat up every time. Mm-hmm. Well, because it's one of the few times I equate it to. Um, Tina in Ruthless, where what makes the parts work so well and why it's really hard to cast is you have to find a child who can act like an adult. You need a very precocious child. Yes, because the humor of Dodger is how he acts like he's 40, but he's 13. <laughs> and that's what's funny is he, he, and he has to be a straight man almost. He's not mm-hmm. even necessarily making the jokes most of the time. What's funny is that he is so serious about being a middle-aged preteen. Yeah, he wears a top hat. He wears an ascot. <laughs> Um, one of his first line is like, what you staring at? Have yeah. You, ain't you ever seen a tough? And it's just so good. Um, like Jack, like Jack Wilde doesn't necessarily have comedic timing. He just plays it so committed. And same thing with Tina and Ruthless. Mm-hmm. Like she's not like mugging to the audience or rather a good Tina and Ruthless does yeah. not mug to the audience. You're not pulling a zero Mostel no, in these roles. She's, she's nine to quote uh, Morgan Reynolds in the Ruthless episode, she's nine years old, but she's like Ruth Buzzy asking people <laughs> if they need a refill on their martinis. Like, that is what makes it funny. Oh, yeah. Um, and that's, and what m- makes Consider Yourself also such a pop. He's like, he's not even like, the world's a wonderful place for children. He's like, no. He's like, come into my living room. <laughs> he's like, put oh, your feet up. He's like, I feel like there's a like lifetime where the Artful Dodger turns into Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins. If he didn't get arrested in the novel and stage show. Remember, we're going to be talking about that sequel. But... Oh, right. There's a, I keep forgetting yeah. there's a sequel. But I feel like there's um, there's this energy where Artful Dodger is of the streets, loves the streets, and wants you to love the streets with him. Like, he yeah. is not a put-out child. Whereas Oliver's just like, can someone please help me? Dodger's like, I help myself. And he's like, and look at it. He's like, it's all kind of pretty awesome. Yeah. Like, he fully loves being out here. It's very funny to me. It, it, it also kind of reminds me of Streets of Dublin from Man of No Importance. Of, it's this child. Uh, the, so, okay. Go for that, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, this is a Run bit of a tangent. Run with it, girl. Run with but it. But there's something about Dodger where I'm like, this child is feral and happy about it. Yeah. But he's not feral in, like, a he can't exist in society he has made the active like decision like we don't know much about dodger's backstory and where he came from we don't need to he was just sort of hatched I, yeah i feel like dodgers in the same way that like athena is born out of zeus's head in greek mythology i feel like the dodger just like comes out of a dustbin in london and just is oh my god can we do a production of oliver probably directed by eva van Hoffe, oh god where dodger is played by a 19 year old twink and he emerges like Uma Thurman as Aphrodite from the shell. Iconic. <laughs> Out of like the cabbage leaves of the oh, marketplace. Yeah, it's gotta be cabbage yeah. leaves. He, like Oliver's just like walking past the market and then just out of this yep. gigantic cabbage he is birthed. I mean, the way that Mark Lester looks at Jack Wilde in that movie when he first shows up, he's like eating him alive with his eyes. Yeah. It's like two boys at a bathhouse. He's like, hello. I know, <laughs> no, it, it is the most. And it's just like, where is, are you taking it's Oliver? A very, it's a very sexual look that Mark Lester is giving Jack Wilde. Which is so funny. I know. It's so funny. It's so because funny. Because Oliver is like a very straight musical. Yeah. But the kids did not get the memo. No. 
It's like the the everyone behind the camera is like no homo, and the kids are like no, it it's totally homo. Oh no, no, I not even that. The kids aren't even. It's totally homo. The kids are just like. But I'm in love with you. Yeah. Well, I think what he's trying to come across is like, I've never seen anyone like you before. And like, and it's, it looks so cool. But his face isn't even like, oh, look at this cool person. His his face is like, how you doing? It's so No, it's crazy. not quite a how you doing. I will say, this young child is not like salacious. No, but... he's not like licking his lips. I'm just saying like, he's giving him a smirk that you recognize Matt LeBlanc giving to women on Friends. It's Fair. very reminiscent. It's very knowing. It makes me think that like No, he doesn't they... like bend over. He's like, hey. No. no, it's not that. No, it's very, um, like I bet before they filmed that scene, they were like messing around. Sure. And then like it... To me, it's the smirk that people give each other on SNL when they're very close to making someone break, and they're just like, oh, I know exactly what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I feel like he was doing that to Jack. If he knew he was going to make Jack laugh at something, or he like did something they had done before, it's like an inside joke look. But the way that that reads, when you don't know the inside joke... It's very flirtatious and yeah, sexual. It's, it, it's odd. This episode will be shut down by Apple within an hour of it coming out because oh, no. of everything that I just said. <laughs> Consider yourself. What are your thoughts on this song? Amazing group number. Yeah. Sets up, like, I understand why we open with Food, Glorious Food, and, like, you need the intro into Oliver Twist. Sure. But there is a world in which that is the first number of the show. Yeah. Because it is so good, and it tells you exactly what the rest of that act is going to be like. Yeah. And it endears you to Artful Dodger so quickly. Which is... The important thing. You yeah. need Oliver to get wrapped up in Dodger's world so he can be, so we can buy him getting taken. Yeah. In the, way, in the way that you fall in love with Oliver's eyes and you want to protect him, Dodger almost impresses you in Consider Yourself and you're like, oh, I want to hang out with this yeah. kid. Especially because Fagin, when we first meet him, is kind of creepy. Mm-hmm. Even when Ron Moody is doing his Ron Moody stuff. Like, there's something about him that, like, you don't totally trust. But because we trust Dodger... And Dodger trusts Fagin. Mm-hmm. We're like, okay, there must be something going on. Like, there's got to be something redeemable about yes. Fagin, which there is in my Yeah, opinion. he's got a lot of good stuff. He's got, the, the musical and movie version of him have a lot of good qualities. Deeply, deeply more sympathetic to him. Yes. Well, it treats him less of an overall villain and more as um, a conflicted man between what he likes to do, what he knows he should do, and... They give him human motivations Uh, instead of making him a cartoon anti-Semitic villain. Well, so what I love what they do with uh, reviewing the situation is when sort of like all this shit has hit the fan Mm -hmm. and he's deciding exactly what it is he should do. Should he, you know, uh, was it it, uh, fight or flight? Oh, yeah, yeah. And the movie version has him grabbing his like treasure of stuff and he's constantly like getting towards the door. Getting but away he can't from the bring door. himself to leave the kids. Um, that's how it ends. Ends, but yeah. uh, he it's he first gets to the door and then he walks away. Then he's able to get through the door, but he can only get like two steps away. And then he goes back in. Then he gets all the way down the stairs, and then he runs back up. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see, like he he and what makes him leave is not even like fuck these kids. But he's like maybe I should make something of myself. Like at some point. he's had a sort of wool over eyes moment of like. This is what my life is. Yeah. I am nearing old age, which they foreshadow in a scene more in the timeline of what we're talking about. We're hopping yeah. forward. Yeah. But 
he's reaching old age and he's looking at sort of what he has of his life mm-hmm. and who he surrounds himself with, in particular Bill Sykes. And has a moment of, is this who I want to be? Is mm-hmm. this what I want my story to be? And he ends up deciding at the end of that number, A, that it's kind of too late to go back now. Mm-hmm. But also that, yes, he's this scoundrel. Yes, he's this thief. But these kids need him. Yeah. And if he leaves, all these kids he's kind of collected over the years are screwed. Mm. Royally screwed. The main thing with him kind of wanting to leave as well as him going like, is this sustainable? Mm -hmm. You know what I've... The running gag I've now put on this show is... uh, incorporating sex in the city into literally every episode oh my god but the episode where they all got to the hamptons at the end of season two and Miranda's like you know it's cute sharing a cabin with your girlfriends in your 20s but in your 30s isn't it kind of lame and it's sort of fake and going like can i do this when i'm 70 yeah like, especially when he's talking about the wife thing where he's like i know yeah. i'm supposed to want this but do i actually want this yeah well and, and then that's the samantha in him where he's like do i want a wife and, and a stable job no but also like on the other end if i'm doing this thing which i'm good at and i genuinely enjoy doing like it's not gonna be it's gonna get harder as i get older and it's not gonna be like uh charming anymore or, like mm-hmm. it's not gonna be cute anymore he's not a brooding rogue yes. anymore he's very aware of the ticking clock whereas a lot of other people aren't it's you know just very much no, sort of he like he is hyper aware of like this is what i got this is the hand i've been dealt the situation can the fella be a villain all his life all the trials and tribulation better settle down and get myself a wife and the wife would cook and sew for me and come for me and go for me and go for me and nag at me the finger she would wag at me the money she would take from me a misery she'd make from me i think i'd better think it out again no one else in Oliver, at least of that class system, is aware of the future because they're like, what future? It's just like you wake up and you just survive. And Fagin's thinking about the future. Yeah, I mean, you've got the whole song, It's a Fine Life, which Mm -hmm. is basically, and this is the first time that we see Nancy. In the stage show. Uh, Oh, no, no, movie two, you're right, you're right, you're right. I take it back. I take it back. I take it back. I said what I said and I took it back. Listeners, please put it on your whiteboard. (laughs) So basically. Sometimes I've said it. So, basically, it's a fine life. Nancy flat out says, this is just what it is. Yeah. And this is what I expect my life to be. And particularly when Ron Moody is playing Fagin. Because while it is written in some ways, Ron Moody was brilliant at saying everything in the silences. hmm And his interpretation of Fagin is very aware that this is not all that life is. Mm-hmm. And that the people that they thieve from, in some ways, have lives that these kids could theoretically have, but he cannot have the position he has if he doesn't have the kids under him. Mm-hmm. He's very, he's kind of the only real adult in the show, in my opinion. Because, I mean, you got the kids, but also Nancy and Bill. They're not that old. They aren't. The stage show puts them in their early 20s as opposed to Nancy being like 17, no. 18 in the novel. But that's novel. still, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the movie, you know, Shani Wallace, I think it was like 33 when she mm-hmm. did it. 
Oliver Reed was 29 when he yeah. played Bill Sykes. And I was like, how dare he be two years younger than me? Yeah, and he made what? Way, he looks 40. But... Um, yeah. But, but no, the... Bill and Nancy are supposed to kind of be, like, on the cusp of, like, true adulthood. Um, so they're... They are acting a little older than they are. But in a weird way, I feel like they're on the cusp of true adulthood in a sheltered way. Mm-hmm. And that this is all they've known. They do not know an alternative to the life that they were given with Fagan. Yeah. This is... To them, this is all there is. There is no class mobility for them. Nancy does not harbor dreams a la Eliza of owning a shop. No, it- it's and a fine uh, life. By Eliza, I mean Eliza and my fair lady. Yeah. It's a fine life is literally the opposite of an I want song. Yeah. It's a. It's I'm happy. I'm settling. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I want for nothing. But it's so bopping. Oh, it's such a bop, and especially when you have a good throaty alto doing oh, it. Oh yes. Uh, it's it's quite good. The in so in the stage show, literally Nancy just shows up with Bet, which in, for some reason the musical is played by like an actual teenager, like a thirteen year old. Yeah. And Nancy's played by a woman in her early thirties. Mm-hmm. So I'm like. I, why? I don't understand that stylistic change, uh, choice, but you know what? It brought because us. Because if Nancy and Bet are the same age, then when Dodger falls in love with Bet, it feels weirder. But was that was that in Bart's mind? Oh, it absolutely was. Because he also didn't write the sequel. But who wrote the sequel? Oh, we'll talk about it. We'll get wait, to it. We'll get to wait, it. Wait. So did the sequel exist before Oliver the musical N- came out? No. Dodger exclamation mark was written after Lionel Bart died. No, okay, so this the Dodger exclamation point. Is it based on a pre-existing work? In the same way that, like, fan works exist. Okay. Because, so the original Dickens was so successful... That people were writing their own sequels. Yeah, that, that were nowhere near as big. It, it basically is a fan fiction musical. Okay. It's, it's Love Never Dies okay. Deluxe. Here, this, this, okay, this is why I'm asking. Mm. Because if Dodger Exclamation Point was written after Bart died, and it's not based off of an existing text, or rather I should say, in my mind, before you said what you said, I was like, okay, so it came out after Lionel Bart died, and it's not based off of an official text... How would they have known in 1960 and 61 to cast a 13-year-old girl? Oh, they wouldn't have, but it's cheaper. Under the age of 16 in the UK, child labor laws, you pay that person much less. What surprises me is that it's not the Nancy understudy in the track. It should be, yeah. Like, I'm just surprised they didn't do that. That's absolutely what it should have been. Um, It's just so very strange, because then you're sitting there going like, why is this 30-year-old woman hanging around with this 13-year-old girl? dramaturgy though i think there also is a layer of nancy's kind of the only maternal figure available to oliver versus if bet's also that age it's kind of like why isn't bet doing anything but if bet's 13 sure that makes sense i mean i guess and that's sort of where the movie is able to take advantage of having various scenes Mm -hmm. of different locations where you can sort of see nancy's place with everyone and and nancy's relationship with oliver is much more developed in the film nancy in general is nancy's a colder figure in the novel and the stage show than she is in the movie much um in the novel nancy is you know she she's friends with the kids because again she's also a little closer to their ages Mm -hmm. in the novel um she is not a maternal figure she's not a windy darling and yes and she has only really a crisis of uh morality in the second half uh, and it takes a while for her to, like, really kind of, like, act on yeah, it. Yeah, but in the musical, she doesn't have the luxury of the time of that development. No. But what I mean is that, like, in the musical, she's not all that... Um, she's... I mean, you could say, argue she's a bit maternal. And when you watch Georgia Brown 
on the Ed Sullivan show doing I Do Anything. Like, she definitely has that energy. But the way it's just, like, on the page. Mm-hmm. Nancy does not have a real connection with Oliver for most of the show. It's just a, she has a crisis of conflict, like, the last 20 minutes of the show. Yeah. Um, Which makes it kind of startling to watch today because we've gotten sort of spoiled with character development. Yes. Uh, her The development of her character, I think, I personally think, is, is a little weak in the show. What makes it work is if you have a really strong, charismatic actress doing mm-hmm. it, but that should not be, like... Ideally, act- your material yeah. should not require performers. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. Um, I, I was going to say, it's like, it shouldn't be an Atlas job where they're, like, mm. carrying the burden of an arc on their shoulders that they've, like, made on stage with looks and gestures. It should be there already. And they just mine it for gold. But even so, yes, uh, when Nancy comes out and sings It's a Fine Life, it is a bop. It is very much like, oh, hey, Nancy's here for a second. She <laughs> does a little bit with Dodger and the kids. The and little do I do anything. I do anything, which is literally just like, oh, Nancy, give us a little show. Yeah, and it, it basically is showing her relationship to Dodger, even though that doesn't ever really get developed. Nope. Uh, the movie does a better job. The movie doesn't uh, carry it out as much as I wish they would. But you, but because we have the benefit of close-ups, we get to see Jack Wilde's reactions to a lot of things that happen to Nancy that he has to sort of just stand witness to, and yeah. we see how it affects him, which is really nice. Um, I also just love the carriage they make with the umbrellas. Yeah. Anna White's choreography in the film oh, slaps. It's so fun. I love just a little bouncing. Oh, yeah. I do anything. Also, the fisticuffs joke, and I do anything. It's my favorite. It's it, my favorite. But also, it makes more sense in the movie because in the stage show... Again, we don't know who Bill Sykes is. Mm-hmm. And this is if you don't know the novel One Iota. You don't know who Bill Sykes is. You don't know who Nancy really is. You don't know that Nancy is related, is, no, is uh, dating Bill. And we have no idea like that Bill is this big lumbering person because he hasn't shown up yet. Yeah, and you're told nothing about him. So when Nancy goes, even fight my Bill, and Dodger goes, well, fisticuffs. Like, if you don't know the novel, you're like, what? what, huh? But in the movie, they introduce Bill earlier. He happens after Pick a Pocket or Two. He's got his shadow moment. His shadow moment, and he's delivering uh, things that he's robbed for Fagin, which he has to get cash for later. Mm -hmm. And then Nancy does It's a Fine Life afterwards in the bar, uh, establishing that she is the bar favorite and that she's able to rile up the crowds, which is So Oompapa isn't random. Yeah, and it it also... Uh, is important for Oompapa, which they move to the third act mm-hmm. of the movie. And we'll get to that in a second. Yes. Because, my God, is it my favorite adaptation of a musical number ever. Oh. Um, One thing I will say, that yes. before we leave, I do anything. And we leave that sort of Nancy development. The line, what fisticuffs, is possibly my favorite random interjection in the history of musical theater. It is so funny. It's it good. is so left field. And the kids consistently who play Dodger, the delivery, it makes me cry laugh. Well, because it, it's a wonderful build. I know that I'd go anywhere for your smile. Anywhere for your smile. Everywhere I'd see. Would you climb a hill? Anything. Wear a daffodil? Anything. Leave me all your will? Anything. Even fight my bill? What fisticuffs I'd risk? Everything for one kiss. Everything, yes I'd do. Anything. Anything. Anything for you. But yeah, and then Oliver gets captured. And yes. the stage show opens with Act 2 with Oompapa, which... Woo! is 
in the stage show, Oompapa is the welcome back from the bathroom. You have four more minutes before the plot kicks back in again. Yeah, here. Number. Here. Uh, it also serves kind of as a reminder of like, hey, you remember that girl you met for like 10 minutes? Because what's so funny, in the stage show, Nancy does not show up for the first 50 minutes. Yeah. And then she's like there for like 10 and then they're just like, okay, here, we're telling you that this character is important in this act, so don't just think she's the random girl. Mm-hmm. The token woman. <laughs> yeah, she has a number now, guys. Yeah, she's got a she's got her third number now. Come on, here we go. It's weird. Fagin and and uh Nancy are kind of considered really the two leads of that show, which is weird when the show's called Oliver and Oliver's yeah. not even considered a lead in his own show. But I, I don't think it's wrong. Because also It's, it's not wrong, so it's just long- that they're they neither one of them show up for a while because like yeah. Nancy shows up after Fagin but even Fagin it's Fagin's like, like 30 minutes yeah 30 minutes in act one he shows yeah. up but what I think part of the reason why they're considered the leads is because they're by far the hardest to cast mm. Oliver so long as you have a really cute kid who can sing high you're gonna get through it you're not looking for the best actor of all time to play no. your Oliver you need a really really talented comedian for the role of Fagin and you need a really Really good Sean Tuce for Nancy. Yeah. They also just make the biggest impressions in general. True. Um, They're the flashiest roles. They really are. Uh, with Dodger being a third. And Oompapa... Okay. So, I'll talk... We'll start with how Oompapa kind of goes in the show, which we already did, but just a little, little bit longer. And then I want to put a pin in it so we can come back to it later. Okay. I've discussed this before on the podcast. I think I talked about it with the In the Heights movie. Hmm. About why I said... I have said, if you're going to adapt a musical from the stage to film, read the libretto of Oliver and then watch the movie of Oliver and see what they do with Oompapa, because that is a masterclass in adaptation. And it, it tells you so much about Nancy, just in camera framing. And we'll get into it, we'll get into okay. it. But so, in the stage show, it is literally just like, welcome back from the bathroom, and it's Nancy yeah. leading a bar song. It basically just stopped like, hey, we have a bar set. Yep, yep. And they're just like, yeah, it's just, you know, it's a... Uh, <laughs> It's that weird thing where it's like, oompapa, it means nothing, but it means nothing, but it also means everything. It's like... And also, it works really well in the UK because, like, pub songs are such a thing over there. Yeah. I'm sure that there were people who then left the show and went to the pub singing oompapa. Yeah. Well, and it, the way that it uh, is composed, it is to the swing it's of, a, like... It's a swinger. Yeah, you're swinging your, your beer glass around. Oompapa, oompapa, that's, that's how, how it goes. goes. Yeah, it's a, she's a bop, she's a ditty, we like her very much, but... She's great walking music. Yes. If you were told, if you were a fan of Oliver the Stage Show, and you're like, okay, they're making the movie, and like they're probably going to have to make some cuts, you'd think to yourself, okay, well, probably I Shall Scream's going to get cut. Probably Oom Papa, you know, like, it's the opens act too, but, yeah. if, you know, it's whatever. And you're like, sure. Because it does sort of stop the action. It 100% stops the action. But why it doesn't in the movie, we'll get to in a little bit. Ooh. So, oh, and then one thing I would say at the end of Oompapa, in the stage version, is the first time we actually meet Bill Sykes. We do not meet Bill Sykes until the second act. And yep. he's basically just given, my name is Bill Sykes, and I'm a bass, and so I'm intimidating. So, there's a, I'm going to do a little questionnaire with you at the end. Um, one of the questions I actually have, and you don't have to answer just yet, because hmm. we'll hold off on it, but it's called, um, Far Too Many Notes for My Taste. Oh. And it's, which song in this show would you cut? You can have your opinions, and we'll find your opinions at the end, and maybe you'll surprise me. For me, it is the song My Name. Okay. Uh, this song has always made me laugh, because it is just such a, like, I'm the villain, I'm the villain, look at me, I'm the villain. Oh, deeply. My name. Strong 
women tremble when they hear it. They've got cause enough to fear it. It's much blacker than they smear it. Nobody mentions my name, Rich. The thing that's hard about Bill Sykes, especially as written in the libretto, he is not really a character so much as a plot device. Yeah, very much so. What makes him work in the movies, first of all, Oliver Reed was a phenomenal actor and was just like inherently He's terrifying. terrifying. To look at. Yes. But they cut my name in the movie because they're like, when you sing, especially a song like My Name, which is. Your, it's not an I Shall Scream where you're, like, talking about your psyche. Yeah. My name is Bill describing, like, his emotional state. But he's not even describing his own emotional state. He's describing what other people think of him. But that sort of uh, tells you a lot about his emotional state, that it's not even, like, here are my feelings. He's like, my feelings are what people think of me. Like, mm-hmm. I want people to fear me. I, I guess, but I feel like it kind of defangs him. It no, Oh, it 100% defangs him. That's why I would cut the song. Mm-hmm. I'm saying I don't... That is the song's intent. I think it shits the bed i think it does a bad bad job i feel like it's the i feel like the song my name could have worked if it was like dodger pretending to be bill and it was like one of the kids like like it if it was a situation where you don't have your scene in act one and i was just like who is bill sykes and And like dodger like does the stuff and then like bill sykes like comes up behind dodger like doing Mm -hmm. the thing and then dodger like runs that would have worked much better much better i still don't Love it, but I will give that a gentleman 7 out of 10, as opposed to my name, which is a 1 out of 10, at best. (laughs) I also just, I want more Dodger. (laughs) Yeah, no, Dodger, Dodger's not in the stage show nearly enough. He almost disappears completely in Act 2. He has, like, two small moments. It's so sad. It's really sad. Forgotten. We, we, I'm sorry, we exchanged Dodger for Bill Sykes. No, ma'am, I don't like that exchange rate. Yeah, no, no. Um, But then also, we come out of my name, which kind of leaves the audience being like, this is our villain. Yeah, and, he, and, he, and then it goes into as long as he needs. But me. also, the ending of my name was also stupid. It's like, what is it? What is it? My name. I hate it so much. It's so dumb. But also, yeah. it does it. It fails in two ways. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make Bill Sykes more intimidating to us in any way, and it makes us kind of look at Nancy like, why the hell are you with? this dude if you keep him silent then when she sings as long as he needs me you can read into being like oh there must be a side to him that we don't know is the audience when you've just watched my name you're just like he's an idiot yeah like it's not even that he's like so scary he's intimidating you like this dude is a waste of skin yeah and it's not even a situation where it's like oh he was loving and he's gotten hard over the years it's just like because he doesn't even have because what I think would have worked better and why I like the Dodger, my name, is I like the idea that Bill Sykes was Dodger grown up, yeah. basically, and has that sort of charm and has that sort of ability to work a crowd. When Bill Sykes sings my name, you're just like, you were hit a couple too many times on the head during robberies. Mm-hmm. And then immediately out of Nancy come out and be like, he doesn't act as though he cares, but I know he cares. And it's like, why do you think that? Yeah. Truly, why? Yeah. We're all sitting there and be like, excuse you? And again, it has to be up to the actress playing her to like make us find that connection. But it's giving her a wall she shouldn't have to climb. Yeah, truly. The movie does a good job of including Bill in It's a Fine Life. And of course, he doesn't sing, but he's there while she's singing and in the it, bar. And it gives her a way to flirt at him. Yeah. And, and they have moments with each other that are really cute. And the fact that he's not annoyed by her doing it shows you that like, it's partly why he's with her. Like, he yeah. likes this thing about her. He won't show it because he's got to be Bill. But the fact that he's not, like, 
shouting at her to shut up, which sounds really gross to say, like, well, he's not yelling at her, so that's but great. But like, that is the context of the show. And the context of the show and of their relationship. He would yell at anyone else. Yes, yes, exactly. If anyone else was singing a bar song while he's trying to eat, if he would be like, Go away. Shut up. Get but out. yeah, but I love in the in the movie in the line if you don't mind having to deal with Faye again, and she's like that one's to Bill, and like he clocks it, and it's like yeah, they have inside jokes, and yeah. then they have this like scene they together. grew up together, yeah. they know how to talk, and they have this scene together the next morning. She goes, "You do love me, right?" He goes, "Of course I love you. I live with you, don't I?" And yeah. like goes back to sleep. Very. Do you love me from Fiddler, but like dark? Yeah. Oh, so dark. Um, but yes, then she sings as long as he needs me, which is a wonderful song in terms of the melody. Mm-hmm. The lyrics are pretty good, especially when you consider the character of Nancy and her psyche. But yeah, like, it doesn't feel earned in the stage show, because we no. don't see that connection. It doesn't feel earned, and also to me that the way the lyrics work, I wish that, and I've never really seen a production make this choice. Feel free to steal this if you're doing it at your high school somewhere. It should be moved later in the show. Mm-hmm. And I think it should come after where Oompa falls in the movie. Where Oompa is where she makes the decision to run with Oliver. And then as long as he needs me is when she has to reckon with, oh, shit, I just did this thing. Yeah. And now I got to, like, seed through. This isn't just, I'm going to save the kid. Now I'm like, now I have to save the kid. Mm-hmm. And also, like, the place where the reprise falls is where I think the whole song should that, fall. I was about to say, what you just said... That is exactly where it should be. Um, it should be her going to Brownlow and telling him, like, this is what we're going to do to get Oliver back to you. And then him, like, pressing her about Bill. And, and trying to save her. And she's like, no. And she's like, no. And then she runs out. And that's when she sings yes. as long as you it, it should be a moment. I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about I Do Anything, the Andrew Lloyd Webber and Cameron McIntosh oh, we're competition gonna, no, show. We're going to talk about that in the, in the history. Okay, well, I just want to say, I think that... The way that it consistently was done on that show where the girls sing the song when they've been booted off and they're, like, crying yeah. is how it should be in the show. It should kind of be this breakdown moment. Whereas if you look at, like, Georgia Brown doing it on the Ed Sullivan show, it's on my own. Well, Shani Wallace, she doesn't do it totally as a breakdown, but she is kind of on the verge of And that's why it. I deeply prefer Shani Wallace over Georgia Brown. As do I. And she also, she doesn't belt really until the last verse and in it the makes movie. it makes it much more of a gut hit yep and then the movie also carol reed did a phenomenal did such a phenomenal job filming it because there are times when she's being filmed where she's in like really dark lighting or like she, there's a whole sequence where she where she's walking behind all these the broken window lip. panes and the film is telling you like there's what Nancy is saying, and there's what we're telling you. Yeah. Nancy is saying, like, I will stay by his side, and we're telling you, that's Run. not going to end up for yeah, her. Yeah, we're saying yeah. you need to yeah, you need to take this sort of you're gift that you're being yeah. given to get out. You're literally trapped right now, girl. Yeah, it, it's a very good visualization, almost of Stockholm Syndrome. And 100%. Yeah, yeah, in terms of domestic violence in musicals, it's something that comes up a lot in this era, handled to different degrees of success. Mm-hmm. I feel like Lionel Bart did a really good job of understanding the mental headspace of someone 
in an abusive relationship. Yeah, with that song specifically, yeah. But it's really difficult to get the audience in that headspace. Because, mm-hmm. again, they're coming into Bill Sykes, and, like, obviously Bill Sykes is a bad guy. And he has to kind of be obviously a bad guy for your end to work. Yeah. You don't want to feel bad for Bill Sykes. No. There... <sighs> You don't want to feel bad for him. The we'll get into it. We'll get into it. Okay. I, oh God, we'll get into it so much. We're get, we've gone into it, and I will say we've gone into a lot of stuff that we said we were going to get into. Good. So okay. I so I don't want anyone to feel like I'm shortchanging them. We're whenever I say we're getting we're going to get into it, we have for the most part. Yes, and if there's ever audience members who are like, I want to hear more, I can always do a part two. Fantastic. Yeah. Whether I will be there for that is up for debate. <laughs> because I'm sure the audience will be like, great, can you come back? But, um, I don't know, bring someone else. This, oh, this gee. No, so, you're fun. But I'll, okay, so we get out of as long as he needs me. We're in a Where's Love Reprise and he's at the Brownloves. At the Brownloves, yes. Uh, because Oliver got uh, uh, got caught on a job. He was shadowing the Artful Dodger and another boy. Charlie, do- I think. Yeah, Charlie Bates, I think is his uh. name shadowing for anyone who doesn't know it's when you're you are going to be doing a job and you need to sort of watch the people doing the job first. in this case the job is picking pockets yes so he's that's like, what we skipped over gotta pick a pocket or two as well oh yes that is um yes that's act one gotta pick a pocket or two it's just it's basically fig and explaining what the boys do yes and why they do it yeah. um and it's a very funny scene. yes well because it's a lot of visual gags because they have situations where the boys show oliver how they there are different methods of picking mm-hmm. pockets by using handkerchiefs as the the loot yes um and then we find out overnight that fagin has actually been hoarding much more uh expensive things from the boys like the boys are stealing wallets they're stealing handkerchiefs they're stealing like uh pocket watches like things that bring in money fagin sends bill out to go and get jewelry and yes. find garments yes. and stuff like, like that yes fagin has a treasure trove of like legitimate like thousands of pounds worth of jewelry yes uh, it's his retirement fund. It is, exactly. And he says to his birdie, who will take care of me in my <laughs> old age. And Oliver sees it in the middle of the night. And it's the first time we ever see Fagin's... Uh, Darker side. Yeah, because when he sees Oliver see him, he has his like red hot popcorn. What did you see? Like, what did what? you see? What did you see? Oh, it's so good. Anyway. Oh, Ron Moody. So, Ron Moody is great. So, act two, Oliver... Uh, the, the end of act one is Oliver shadows Dar- uh, Artful Dodger and Charlie Bates. And... They almost get caught and they run, and so Oliver gets the blame mm. uh, and gets taken into court and uh, ends up his name ends up being cleared and Mr. Brownlow, the man who was just ends up being adopted by the man. Yes, and <laughs> and partly it's because he feels bad for putting Oliver through that, but he also finds out in court that the boy has no family, and, and then kind of puts two and two together. <laughs> yes, and the novel, well, in the novel also Oliver faints because he's starving yeah. and he's fearful, and the judge has no time for him. Um, and Mr. Brownlow is sort of like, you should have time for this dying child. Yes, and so he takes care of him, and uh, Oliver spends about a week or two with Brownlow at this point because he, that, yeah. he spends like three or four days in bed getting better. Yeah. Um. And yes, while Oliver is there, Mr. Brownlow puts two and two together of the young girl in the portrait who has an amazing resemblance to Oliver. And no, what I, what the show and the movie do well, they keep it from the book too. It's because it, it is a little pat and what makes it swallowable is that when Brownlow uh, brings up the idea to other people, they're like, no. Yeah, they're just like, what? Yeah, he's like, do you see that resemblance? And everyone's like, no. no. <laughs> like, no, I don't. And Oliver doesn't even see the resemblance. Oliver just sees the portrait and he like, he gravitates towards it, but he's not like, I look like her. He's like, 
She's, she's pretty. Yeah, she's pretty. And he likes to look at it. And everyone else is like, no, that boy's measly looking. That girl's a beauty. Like, get it out of your head. You're crazy. It's so funny. It and is. I, I love, like, the headcanon that that is not actually Oliver's mother. And Brownlow just decides, this is my grandson. <laughs> Honestly, I kind of would prefer that. I know. I, I vibe with it. I, w- I would vibe more if it's like, he has that thought in his head. And then, like, you find out, oh, no, they're not related. They just have, there's a similarity. And he's like, well, you know what? Fuck it. Instead, we get a complicated locket plot a la Annie. Yes. Which is even more complicated in the novel. <sighs> because it's, like, the daughter of a friend of his who also, like, somewhat. And then there's a character in the novel that's not in the uh, show or movie named Monks. Mm. Who's, like, Oliver's house brother from that same like just father randomly yeah it's like one of his friends knocked up the daughter of another of his friends and that girl went off and that boy was oliver and all these other things and then the movie and the show are like fuck it he's just it's his daughter it's his grandchild yeah it's like we're just moving past it it's a happy ending it's don't happy ask ending. questions just don't ask questions <laughs> simplify simplify yes. he's, he's just his grandkid but so he's living there he's happy he looks out the window he sees one of the greatest course numbers of all time who will cool buy bye. Who will buy my sweet wet roses? Three blooms for a penny. And an egg today. At some point in the middle, that woman pops up again. She goes, like she hits a No, high my, my favorite is the woman in the background who just goes, ripe strawberries ripe yep. for like three minutes yep love it just so much that. really good counterpoint um, oh no the, it's so good yeah which then the movie like ups even further they include like a million more people selling the knife shit man, a, yeah. yeah i think the, i think so the knife man's in the show he is but he's they but they include even more stuff yeah um and oliver's watching it all and he's just so happy and he's like can i purchase this day because this is such a wonderful feeling and i mm-hmm. i want to stay in it forever it's so sweet yeah and then oliver uh to prove his worth to the house offers to bring books that uh, Mr. Brownlow owes to the bookseller Mm -hmm. and give him back his money and change. Uh, But in this time, Nancy Nancy and Bill Bill kidnap Oliver, bring back to Fagin. And then Nancy has a change of heart and goes to Brownlow and tells him, you will have Oliver back. Um, She basically realizes that, oh, Oliver wasn't being kept against his will. He's happy. Yes. And Oliver never said anything to Brownlow. What changes Nancy's mind is when they find out that Oliver never said anything and Bill still intends to keep him. The movie includes one more thing, which becomes the real breaking point for Nancy, which is Bill takes Oliver on a heist, mm. which was not part of the deal. Yeah. And that's when Nancy breaks and she's like, I won't let Oliver become one of us. He's yeah. a good one. Let Oliver deserves a chance we didn't have. Exactly. And so she goes to Brownlow and she's like, I will get him to London Bridge at midnight. Just be there. And she knows... And then that- we get the um, Fagan stuff. Yes. Um, oh, he's reviewing the situation, which we've already... No, we're not at reviewing the situation yet, even. Reviewing the situation is before... No, so they bring Oliver back to Fagin's den. Yeah. Nancy reviews. Bill maintains that any living is better than no living. It's better for him to be doing this than to be back in, like, a workhouse. And then Fagin tries to be their intermediary when we yeah. see Nancy and Bill fighting with It's a Fine Life Reprise. Oh, right, that reprise. I forgot about that. Where, and, and that's, to me, that's the moment where I'm, that's why I firmly think that Fagin is kind of like the parent of this situation, because it feels like a parent, like, one yeah. hand on each head of two kids. And the way that Ron Moody plays it in the movie, the, and the reprise is not in the movie, but uh, the way that Moody plays it is like he's aware of how much more violence Bill is capable yeah, of than and, what and Nancy's he, experienced, and, and he's he, trying to. And you can it. feel the paternal feelings for Nancy through Ron Moody. Mm-hmm. Of he like he's like I need to keep an eye on Nancy and keep Nancy safe from this. She thinks he's not going to do anything. I don't trust him. Yes. Whereas in the novel. Uh, 
Fagin has much more malicious intent yeah. in regards to having Nancy followed and, and all that other stuff. He thinks that he's trying. He thinks that Nancy might be cheating on Bill and intends to blackmail Nancy into helping him get away from Fagin. It's again super complicated, mm-hmm. and it does. And the we get the same result anyway. Yeah, it's just uh, adding thirty pages to add thirty pages. Exactly. But so and then we get to reviewing the situation yes. once Nancy and Bill leave. Yes, which we've talked about already. Yes, and we don't amazing, have to amazing scene. The one thing I will say while we're here with reviewing the situation, a number that could be done anti-Semitically. Mm-hmm. But when done in the way that Lionel Bart intended with a Jewish actor like Ron Moody, mm-hmm. it is remarkable. And well, the the musical influence is very Yiddish theater. Oh, it's deeply. Like you listen to you go, oh, this is so Fiddler on the Roof. But this show was written before Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, yeah. And it's the only musical element of the show where Lionel Bart really kind of gives References you that. The, that the and, Jewishness of, um, of Bill. In the libretto refers to Fagin by a slur in the beginning. Oh. Yes, yes, yes. That is also true. Uh, Ron Moody, if you listen to the original London recording, he puts on a bit more of a Yiddish accent, which he then removes he for the movie. He opts not to, yeah. Which is f- two reasons. One was he didn't want um, the backlash that Alec Guinness got. Mm-hmm. But also, historically speaking, it is more accurate. Because yeah. uh, he said he said in the interview, the accent that I was using that people sort of... Uh, attribute to the Jewish culture wasn't really a thing in England until the end of the 1800s when immigrants were coming into England from other countries. Mm -hmm. In 1830, 1840, that wasn't happening. Yeah, that's not a thing yet. Yeah, so it was also historically accurate. So it saves us both. But yes, uh, then Nancy Brownlow, she has a reprise of As Long As He Needs Me, which um, in the revival that Patty did is actually (laughs) up a couple of steps. She hits a higher note than Georgia Brown could ever hit. Walking backwards. Backstage, up a staircase. Both times. She goes, she's walking back up both times. It because, is so dumb. Because Sean Coe. Such a dumb stage. Sean Coe, the Why director. Why is she walking away no, from Sean the Coe. audience? Peter Coe. Huh? The director of Oliver. I don't even remember. Sean but Kelly was the designer. Peter Coe, I think. Okay. Well, whoever it is, it's an awful choice. It is. Because the, like, perceived wisdom of an 11 o'clock number, which is what this reprise is. Yes. You go toward your audience. You yeah. bring them to you before the line is cut. And instead, she's like backing away, disappearing into the sky. I, I think what they were trying to do, similar to like my name, where it's like, I can see what you're trying to do. I just think you shat the bed. Yeah. Is I think they were trying to in- indicate to the audience, this is not a moment of power. This is truly her undoing. So we are lo- we're losing Nancy. Maggie May, <laughs> I literally just said, they shat the bed. But I know what they were trying to do. But And the thing that kills me is they really figured it out in the 90s revival. Mm. Where the way that they do it is she's back in the bar. Mm-hmm. And instead of being full of life like it was with the Papa, it's her and just the chairs. And it's almost like her empty chairs and empty tables moment. Mm-hmm. But instead of it being like, oh, my friends, my friends, forgive me. It's like, I need to forgive myself and do this. That's in the reprise or in the... Reprise. Okay. Because in the original staging, she sings the first As Long As You Need To Me in a, I guess not empty, empty bar, but like it's a sparse... Yeah, no, it's her cleaning up after all the... Um, So Oliver and Bill go on the job in the movie, in the show, he's just whatever. Uh, The movie moves Oom Papa to this moment in the third act. Mm -hmm. And it is my favorite adaptation of a song ever. It's a very good choice. Because Nancy has told 
Mr. Brownlow, I will get Oliver to you at midnight, knowing that Bill and Oliver will get back to the tavern at around 11, and in that hour she can, in the kerfuffle... And if she causes a scene with Oompa and gets everyone sort of drunk well, and moving around... Her- don't give away the farm. Nah! What happens is the the heist goes wrong and Bill and Oliver don't show up at 11, they show up at 11.55. And because Bill is on edge, he won't let Oliver out of his sight. And Nancy tries to be like, oh, I'll, I'll just take him to bed. And Bill's like, no, he stays there. Bullseye, his he dog. He can tell something's going and on. And he's like, no, Bullseye, go watch Oliver. And so it's five minutes to midnight Nancy needs to get Oliver out of there. And we've established in It's a Fine Life in the film that she's able to get the crowds riled up in that she's bar. She's a good entertainer. And she hears the band in the background singing Oom Pa Pa. And so over the next four minutes, she gets the bar into the song. And the movie's so good about having that tension of seeing the clock. Of and seeing watching it, it grow. And yeah, and Nancy constantly like pinpointing Oliver and her trying to get it. So that way there are people surrounding Bill and Fagin. Mr. Percy's not grass would often have the odd glass, but never when he thought anybody could see. Secretly he'd buy it and drink it on the quiet and dream. He was an earl with a girl on each knee. And the first thing she has to do is to get like at least three or four people into it so that can get 10 people into it. Mm -hmm. And we see her kind of succeeding, failing, succeeding, failing, and then eventually she gets everyone. And then by the time the song ends, it's this wonderful moment where it's like not just enough that everyone's dancing. People have to be dancing around Bill and Faye. Yes, like they're encircled. And then Bullseye gets distracted because he can't see his master. Well, yes. no, 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 he yells because Oliver's missing. Yeah. It's perfectly timed because when if you watch the movie, the shot is Nancy has, brings everyone around Bill and Fagin, and then Shani Wallace disappears. And within that second, then you hear Bullseye barking. But it's it's so good. Yep. And in the chaos, they can't quite figure out what's going on, and she's out. Yes. And then Bill stands up. He's looking around, and he sees her, and he runs after her. And you, the way that Oliver Reed is running is, like, reckless. He's, like, tripping over himself because he's so angry. It's intense. It's intense. And Fagin's shouting after him, no violence. They I know, tr- and the thing that's crazy about it, with the no violence, there is not an underscoring, but it feels like there should be a Jaws theme underscoring mm-hmm. the way he's moving. Yep, 100%. They took a song that is a welcome back from the bathroom. This song doesn't really mean anything. It's just sort of like, welcome back, and oh, here's an extra song for our yeah. leading lady to remind you that she's our leading lady. And they give it tension they give it stakes they give it story purpose it is brilliant Mm -hmm. and it's it's so good it's so good it is absolutely phenomenal why was shani wallace not nominated for an oscar i'll never know someone called be kind rewind on youtube we need an expose thank you for that (laughs) reference thank you so much um she does reference oliver in the barbara streisand catherine hepburn tied uh. which she attributes to the oscars um love of musicals and the british um invasion of hollywood at that time and she was like that's really she doesn't say that's why oliver won but she said oliver is a perfect example of how of where the academy's tastes were lying yes which i think is a fair assessment but also it's a wonderful movie yes so nancy is running with <laughs> margaret oliver. is getting a soundtrack <laughs> nancy nancy's going to london bridge to get oliver to brown yes gets him to brown love 
basically has to sacrifice herself to keep Bill from grabbing Oliver again. Yes. Um, yes. The stage show, it's a little more methodical. She's waiting for Brownlow. Uh, it, it takes the energy out of it. You need yes. that panicked running. Exactly. Especially because it happened in the stage show, it happens right after the, as long as he needs me reprise, we go to the London bridge and Nancy and Oliver are waiting. And then Bill shows up menacingly and she's like, Bill, what's, why are you looking at me like that? He goes, it's dark, but it's dark enough. Or there's enough light for what I need to it do. It doesn't work. It doesn't. And in the movie, they're running. Bill grabs her. And it's a crime of passion. It's not, yep. he's like, I'm in my mode. Yeah. And exactly. And he like, and he grabs her to throw away so he can grab Oliver and she won't let him grab Oliver. And hits so her she, head. And hits, and she throws herself in front of him and he is so angry at her for what he thinks is a betrayal he's also a violent man and there's not enough time in his eyes and in that moment he hits her and then he hits her again and again yes and it just it keeps going and the way that in the movie the your eyes your eyes close yeah. your eyes yeah. that moment works <laughs> i watched the tape that you said to me and mm-hmm. it almost made me laugh in the stage version yeah because he's just like your eyes your eyes. Well, that was like, a Wednesday matinee. <laughs> but but it's like, he's like timing it yeah. to the hits. And I'm like, what the hell? No. And in the movie, it is a moment of, he's like, he's not even in control no. of himself anymore. No. He's like, your eyes, your eyes, your eyes. But he he's can't like, he's stop like, hitting. He, and he's like, and he's literally saying like, close your eyes because I can't, I can't look at you. Like, you need to be a piece of meat right now. You can't be my but, girlfriend. But, e- but even beyond that, it's like his body is on autopilot yeah. of like, this is what I'm supposed to do in this situation. Yeah. But he's like, but I can't stop seeing that it's Nancy. Yeah. This is Nancy, but I can't stop myself. But it's yeah. Nancy, but it's Nancy, but it's Nancy. Nancy. And mm-hmm. then when he basically kills himself. Um, yeah, the show, he kills himself. The movie, he's... Uh, or not, not, That doesn't kill himself so much in the, in the stage show. No. It is a combination. The novel, he kind of kills himself yeah. because he can't stop seeing Nancy. And he also goes on the run. So, like, after he kills Nancy, there's, like, a solid week or two before Bill dies. Whereas in the stage show and the movie, it's all in one night. It's one big... It's all one big thing. Um, the stage show... He grabs Oliver, they run up to the top of, like, a building, and he's trying to escape, and then he can't stop seeing Nancy's eyes, and that ends up being his undoing, and that's what kills him. The movie, that doesn't ever happen, I think, again, because he's just a little too much on autopilot. Also, the movie, he has had a moment where he's had to kind of acknowledge what he's done, Mm -hmm. because the stage show, it all happens, it all happens very, very quickly. The movie, they run back to Fagin's place, and and there's that moment where Fagin's like, what have you done? And you watch Oliver Reed, like, he's shaking. Yeah, you can... (sighs) Oliver Reed specifically brings this energy to Bill that I think a lot of performers don't, because they kind of see it as, like, a one-dimensional role. Yeah. Which it really easily can be. It's not written to be much more. But Oliver brings this... Like, he has an internal monologue going. Yeah. And when he realizes, like, Nancy's not just hurt. Nancy's dead. Mm -hmm. And he goes back to Fagin's and he realizes, like, you're all I've got now. Because Na- basically, I-, I think of his family as being Nancy, Fagin, and himself. Mm-hmm. That's the only people he lets in. And then Nancy's gone. And then he kind of just like looks at Fagin and he's like, this is my life now? Mm-hmm. And he's responsible for it. And he... He and is you, the reason for his own undoing. And in the, and in the movie as well, and there's they have it a little bit in the show, but the movie drills it a little further, which I like, is that... Anytime he's talking about money or jobs, it's about him and Nancy. He's like, we are, like, we're doing we're this. We're gonna get We're out. doing we're this for gonna you. Do a thing. And, like, this money is for us. Like, it's not me and she's all They were the a ride. true partnership. Yes, he was like, this is my person. And, like, we're building a life. And mm-hmm. you are going to make sure to not, like, undercut that. So him killing her in the movie, like, you see that internal conflict of Oliver Reed of the shock the guilt again him being on autopilot but also everything that's going on and we're not saying that this justifies 
shit. No, but, but it's fascinating. And it, it makes it, it makes it more engaging rather than just making him a one-dimensional villain. I know. And it's one of those things where, when we talked about this the first time we met, of domestic violence and musical theater, people like to sort of see that issue in black and white, good and bad. Mm-hmm. And yes, unequivocably, domestic violence is bad. Don't say unequivocally be- again. <laughs> Can I say it again? <laughs> yes, unequivocally, <laughs> domestic violence is bad. I'm keeping both takes, by the way. Okay, uh, thank you. You're welcome. But, <laughs> yoink. <laughs> but. I had to knock you down a peg since I've been uh, on a three all day. Okay, to go, finish go, go. the thought. <laughs> Sorry. Domestic violence is not carried out by some. It's the same thing of like a villain doesn't think they're a villain. Yeah. And that extends to this of Bill thinks he loves Nancy. Bill isn't like, I'm a bad guy, and I'm going to show that by hitting my girlfriend. That is not what's happening there. And while it might be more comfortable for an audience member to omit the fact that that literally happens, it's still... Like, it's better storytelling, frankly. And yes, there can be a conversation to be had about the role of women in this show and the fact that Nancy's basically the only one with any kind of agency, and even then it's tangential agency. Mm But to me, it feels very authentic to the time period. We're talking about the 1830s. What options does Nancy have? And also, what other examples does Bill have that he's looking at? He's got Fagin and eh? Yeah. (laughs) He doesn't have a dad that's around. No. And even if he does have some, like, parentage that we aren't aware of, probably wasn't great, seeing as how he ends up in Fagin's camp. Mm Mm-hmm. So... We're going to wrap things up just because I realized uh, the chip that we're recording on has like seven more minutes left Ooh. on it. Um, and okay. I'm not sure for... So to quickly yeah. loop so, yeah. it, Oliver is reunited with Mr. Brownlow. The mob disperses off yeah. stage. Bill dies. Fagin gets... Oh, yeah. B- Bill dies. Yeah. <laughs> and sort of assuages the bloodlust yeah. of the mob after finding Nancy's body. And Fagin just sort of decides that... I don't need to change. Things have never looked better for me. And he sings mm-hmm. a reprise of reviewing the situation and goes on being Fagin. Yes. Uh, the movie has him reunite with Arful Dodger, whereas Dodger oh, is arrested in the show. It's a little more of a satisfying ending for me, whereas in the stage show, it's kind of like, it ends on such a soft note. Yeah. There's not like a big like bang in the Especially because the then in the cl- uh, the bows, they were like, con, say to yourself. And I'm like, that wasn't a rousing ending. Yeah. It's but- just like, uh yeah. But it makes sense if Arkville Dodge is like one of the last characters you see on stage, then like open with him coming out. Yeah. It's good. Um, so the show opened, as I said, uh, it opened on, I'm sorry, what was it? Um, I have the exact date. It was January, uh, January 6, 1963, opened at the Imperial Theater. Reviews were mostly positive, except for uh, Walter Kerr, who was like, I don't. No, Walter Kerr was picky. It. He was very picky. Um, and there were some other reviews that were like, it's not as good as everyone will tell you, but like, it's fun. Yeah. And the main thing about the show that kind of got everyone uh, enthralled was it had a unit set on a turntable. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a million set pieces. It was uh, one basic abstract set of London that was able to be a million locations while basically still staying the same. Which really kind of amazed people. Yeah. And that... Be- and on the turntable added a fluidity to the staging that was sort of a progression from the fluidity of the staging in South Pacific where John Logan uh, John, John Logan or Joshua Logan? Joshua, Joshua Logan. Logan Joshua Logan was able to have sort of like fades and uh, wipe cuts in South Pacific with Oliver basically scenes could blend from one into the other which was uh, vi- not a new thing but it was a new way of doing that and it 
ushered in a new era of kind of design and staging. Yeah, it for really musicals. opened things up. The musical was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, including Best Musical. Do you know the other three it was up against? Not off the top of my head right now. Uh, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. <laughs> Little Me and Stop the World I Want to Get Off. It won Best Score yeah. against Little Me, Stop the World I Want to Get Off, and I don't remember the third one. And it also won Set Design and Conductor slash Music Director. It was This is the second to last year that that category would be in existence. R.I.P. R.I.P. I am on a one-woman crusade. The show ran for 774 performances. It transferred to the Schubert for the last couple of months of its run. The thing I was going to say that intrigued me about the run is, it you know, it was a good hit. It's referenced on Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... In the last six months of the run, the summer before it closed, it ended up being the most in-demand ticket in New York, more so than Hello, Dolly! and Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, yeah. Partly because it was on the Ed Sullivan Show, but also because the World's Fair was in New York that year, and all these families were in town and they wanted to see something, and so scalpers were making like four times the amount off of Oliver tickets than they were making on Hello, Dolly! Yeah. Which really opened up the eyes to producers of family shows. Yeah, it's like, wait, kids are all market we haven't cornered. Exactly. Uh, the ultimate legacy of this show we ha- uh in america the legacy is not as large as it is in England, definitely obviously. not it's um, like the most done kids show in the uk well i mean and it's done here like regionally and in schools a lot but like in terms of broadway it had uh it returned for a second in the 60s for like two months and then it came back in the 80s in a replica revival which was not good which was yes and patty likes patty lapone was our nancy ron moody finally got to play fagan on broadway and nancy uh patty likes to claim that frank rich closed the show and i'm like listen if every other review was good and the demand was there, it wouldn't matter what Frank Rich said. Frank Rich didn't like Cats very much, and that show ran for 17 yeah, years. Yeah, Frank Rich is not your make or break. No. I just don't think the demand was there. No. Uh, and also, it was a situation where people weren't super going for Patty at this point. It's not like how yeah. Patty could keep a show up in by herself. Yeah. And if people wanted to see Ron Moody's performance, they could just put on the movie. Yes. The movie was popular in America, but again, it was not the cultural phenomenon like West Side Story the movie was no. or Sound of Music was. It was a very successful yeah. movie. But it, mo- it, people weren't like, this is what like made me fall in love with musical theater. Exactly. Uh, the movie of Oliver also very successful. One Best Picture. I personally think rightfully so, but lots of gay. <laughs> um, I think Funny Girl is very overrated. It's 45 minutes too long. It's Ooh. it's the Barbara show and Barbara's amazing and there are some ma- amazing songs, but it loses so much steam in the we second We can do half. a podcast about Funny Girl one day. I love to do it. Uh, in the UK, Oliver has had such a life. So many revivals. A huge life. The Cameron Macintosh 1994 revival, where they add in a couple of book changes from the movie for the better. And like a hundred kids. A hundred kids. <laughs> and then in the early 2000s, they did a reality show. Casting, the best! Casting Nancy and Oliver called uh, I Do Anything. I'm obsessed with it. This was one of my main entertainments during quarantine, like the first round of quarantine in like April mm-hmm. of 2020. I went hog on this show it's unhinged every time andrew lloyd webber enters and for like his judging seat they play the overture to phantom of the opera it is so insane Mm -hmm. there's random competitions where like the girls have to like go and learn how to like sell in an actual shop and the boys are like rappelling down staircases it's it's unhinged, and I wish every single show that Cameron McIntosh ever does from this point forward does a version of it. Andrew Lloyd Webber, if you can hear me, when you reopen Cinderella, please do, like, a competition for a stepsister or something. I don't even know, but it's insane, and I'm obsessed with it. Oh, I can't wait. It's so good. It's all on YouTube. Please go watch it. 
I want that very much so. I have not seen any of those reality shows. I watched the Grease one when it was mm. here. But, uh, I mean, obviously we started with the Sound of Music one, How Do You Solve a Problem Like Maria, and then they did one with Wizard of Oz. Go, 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 and, go Joseph. And Joseph. Uh, maybe this is a good time to ask the listeners, uh, if you want me to do a sub-series on this podcast with Margaret where we go through all of these reality yes. shows and we recap and review them... Let us know. Oh, please. I would love nothing more. DM me on Instagram, at Matt Cop, like usual spelling. Margaret, what's your Instagram handle? At Stardust's Child. At Stardust's Child. Uh, DM us and let us know. If we get enough uh, interest, we'll do a little sub-series. It would be so good. Oh, God. Yeah, I look forward to that. Um, uh, Roundup questions. Uh, Far too many notes for my taste. What song would you cut if you had to? I'm I'm with you on my name. My name? Good. Good Unless you're doing my Artful Dodger thing. Um. Oh right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Eh, maybe we'll see. I, I, I want to see it. There's a lot of surgery I'd be willing to do on that show. Um, next one. I dreamed a dream cast. Who would you love to see in this show? <sighs> Whew. Me, please. I've come very close to playing Nancy many times. Uh. Other than that, I would love to see someone like Ciara Renee as oh. Nancy. Mm-hmm. I'd also really love to see like a john lithgow as fagin mm. which is i'm aware it's weird casting also someone like john bolton yeah would be great i, I just i'd love to see someone who's like slightly more stately mm. as fagin a little less like wiry yes sort of because you you're not going to do a better version of the ron moody than the ron moody did yeah and so i'd love to see like a different take on it totally and outside of that I don't know why, but I'm very taken with the idea of, like... Because supposedly they're making a movie adaptation starring LL Cool J, which is very random. Okay. Uh, and in that sort of situation, I want, like, a Ramin Karamalu as Bill Sykes. I want someone who's, like, a good actor in that role and see what can happen if we really get, like, a good Nancy and a good Bill against each other. Scale of 1 to 10. 1 being no, 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 no way. And 10 being now and forever. How would you rate Oliver? The stage show. The stage show, six. That's good. Six. Um, There we go. Yeah, for me, that's about right. Um, With with a good cast and an inventive director and nice sets, I would maybe give it a seven. Yeah, it could get up to a seven or an eight, depending on direction. But the show itself, like, it's a six. It's fine. I'm not, like, I will go see it. If I'm, like, going to go see, like, a middle school production, I will have a good time. I'm not getting a tattoo for Oliver. No, me neither. Uh, there's a, there was a report that around the time of the movie version of Oliver coming out, uh, R- Lionel Bart was making 16 pounds a minute mm-hmm. due to his royalties. Oh, yeah. Uh, which he then uh, spent all of. And then, so with the 94 revival, he did a lot of rewrites for it, partly to improve the show, but also because... So Cameron McIntosh could give him his rights back. Yes, exactly. Which was a really nice thing of Cameron McIntosh because Lionel Bart sold his royalties because he needed to make money fast so he could... Uh, continue putting money into his new projects, none of which ever made any money. Lionel Bart essentially made the same gamble that Andrew Lloyd Webber made for Cats, where if you're familiar with that story, Andrew Lloyd Webber mortgaged his house to keep the money in Cats because producers were pulling out. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, that paid off for him, but if it hadn't, he would have lost the house. Mm -hmm. Lionel lost the house. Yes. And he really also struggled with alcoholism and drug dependency, which sucked up a lot of it. And a lot of people didn't want to work with him because of that, which meant there was even less money coming in and it got really hard. And in what I think was a really actually kind gesture, Cameron McIntosh made sure he got a piece 
Because Cameron McIntosh continues to own the rights to Oliver. If you mm-hmm. do Oliver anywhere, a little bit of money's going to Cameron McIntosh. Mm-hmm. And so long as Lionel Bart was alive, Cameron McIntosh made sure that any money that came to him also partially went to Lionel. Yes. It's a very good gesture on his part. It also improved the show. Yeah. Not to make it a full-blown 8.5, but like a solid 7. Yeah. Um, and that revival was very successful. We've never gotten it here because we could never do it here. It has a million children. Yeah, Cameron. Ma- so the reason that you can do it in the UK and the way that Cameron McIntosh did it, he paid. So there's about a hundred kids or so yeah. in that variation. Specifically, thinking of the 2009, 2010, 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. And the way he got around that is he paid transportation for the kids and fifty dollars sh- or fifty pounds a show. And then they'd leave after their two giant numbers in the beginning. After Consider Yourself and after Food Glorious Food, they could dip. Yeah. In the U.S., because of how our child labor laws are structured, he would have had to have put them all on equity principle contracts, basically. Or not equity principle, equity chorus contracts. Mm-hmm. And ECCs are expensive. Currently, as we're sitting here right now, it's about $2,000 a week mm-hmm. as a minimum. Yeah, before you ECC. add any other perks. And if you have children in your shows, you have to have minders who have to be hired. You have to have teachers that are hired. Like, there's a whole staff that comes with having kids backstage. And Cameron McIntosh tried very hard to sort of lobby equity and basically said, either I'm doing this show the way that we did it in the UK or I'm not bringing it. And equity said, you got to put them on ECCs. And then he said, then I'm not bringing it and mm. did it on a non-equity tour that never really came to New York. Yeah, I remember that. Um, I mean, that, that revival was a big hit and, and was well-received. And I remember in America, everybody was like really wanting to have yeah, it. people and just, wanted it to transfer and it just didn't happen. Yeah, I th- honestly, I think that's going to be sort of the undoing of Oliver, the stage show uh, for you, a Broadway revival is Yeah, you that need money. that many kids. Yeah. And it's so hard to do it right without that. I mean, it's... Yeah, because it, it's not just like Matilda where you need kids who can like sing and dance and all that stuff. Like it's a very specific style of story, which requires a kind of precocious mm-hmm. child actor that is hard to find, uh, truthfully. And especially over here in the U.S., if you're hiring American kids, how many American kids are familiar with panto and music hall tradition mm-hmm. in the U.K.? Yeah, exactly. Well, there, so there's a reason why they had a couple of British kids come over with Oliver the first time around. Why Bruce, what, I keep forgetting his fucking last name, <laughs> uh, Bruce Pishapishish. Um, Bruce, Bruce, Pro- Bru- Bruce Prochnik, who was a British Oliver, came over to do the show. And in fact, his family got um, had to go to court in England at the time because there was a law in England that any child under 14 was not allowed to work in America. Oof. Um, and, and his uh, mom was there. I think like, that's with still him. on the books. Is it still on the books? I think it is. Uh, I mean, maybe for like stage work but at that time i think it was like in general like no yeah, child, yeah, like, yeah. E- like even a film they couldn't do they would have to film it in, in england if they uh wanted yeah, to now, do it. now it, you can like go for dispensation and it's because they have these like teaching things set up and yeah. binders and stuff uh but yeah i just i think it'll be if we ever get oliver again it's going to be a minute it's going to have to be a production that really has figured out the logistics of it all and has just enough kids that it can feel like an Enough kids. They need to find the new generation's hell prince and how he was able to do the opening of Evita and make it feel like a giant crowd when there's like 15 people on stage. They yeah. need to find someone who can do something like that with the kids. Yeah, exactly. Um, final thoughts on Oliver. I really- oh, sequel. Tell oh. me about the sequel. Yes. Crook. Okay. So, oh my God. I totally forgot. Yeah. It's called Dodger exclamation mark. Dodger is arrested and sent to an Australian penal colony. And so is Beth and they fall in love. And it was not, Lionel Bart was not involved in it in any way, and you are not going to see the show anywhere. 
but it's i'm just obsessed with the fact that it exists have you seen anything on it like i've heard a couple of the songs through the grapevine it never came to the u.s and it did not run long in the uk and it didn't make it to the west end it was like their equivalent of regional theater i know Dodger exclamation mark. Dodger exclamation mark. I want a window card for it so bad. Oh my god. There needs to be a movie now called like Bullseye Come Home instead of like Lassie Come Home. I want I want all the Oliver spinoffs. Yes, no, but it makes me laugh so hard. They're just like, what's like a British thing? We need a Australian penal colony. We need a reality show about um Widow uh, Corny and Mr. Bumble's married life. Oh Living with Bumble. Chubby also, hubby. I just want, like, every once in a while, they, like, go over and have dinner with the people who run the funeral parlor, because I'm obsessed with them. They're so fun. I, what's interesting to me, and I'm going to get into this with um, a specific Andrew Lloyd Webber musical later on in the series, which anyone who's listened to the series in the past will know what I'm talking about, but a lot of people whose opinions I respect, because they are very hypercritical, when they talk about Oliver, they're like, well, like, no. Yes, Annie was more successful. Like, Oliver's a better show. And I'm like, I would argue Oliver's a better score, but I think Annie is a much stronger book. People love to dunk on Annie. I really like Annie. I think Annie's wonderful. I think the problem with Annie is that people come to it with their uh, preconceived notions about it. And people so when they, come to it expecting it to be the middle school production they saw on, like, Poe Dunk. And even if they, or even if they stage it professionally, they do it. Like, well, that's what people want, so it's all about the cuteness. Annie, originally on Broadway, kind of was so successful because they're like, we know what you're expecting. Like, this is a family show that all even like rolling your eyes, uh, cynical parents will like, because we were also in on the joke. Mm -hmm. Like it had a sense of humor. It was kind of grungy and mature while still being a spectacle. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens with the Annie live that they're doing. Did you see that Nicole Scherzinger was just cast as Grace? I did see that. That's got me interested because that's a very interesting pick. Nothing about the casting so far has made me roll my eyes. She's, the f- Taraji B. Henson intrigues me. Yeah. I like to see what she does. Harry Connick Jr., I'm like... And whatever. That's, yeah, I'm like, that's fine. Token white you, dude. You could do worse. You could also maybe do better. No one's going to be Daddy Victor Garber for me. Uh, there's uh, that. That is the production that does it for me with Audra yeah. and with Kathy Bates. And ironically, that movie is like not very cynical. It's much more like the squeaky know, clean, you know, but it just so works good. so well. It, well, it's, it's a tight 90 and it's yeah. so well cast and the orchestrations are amazing. I had Paul Bogave on... And I was like, tell me about it. He's like, I just, he's like, I told my all my music arrangers. I'm like, give me Americana. I'm like, then that's what we got. Yeah, that's perfect. Um, Margaret, thank you so much for coming on. Thank uh, you so much for having me. Final, final, final thoughts on Oliver, because I interrupted you with the sequel ah, thing. Final, final, final thoughts. Um, I like it. <laughs> I find myself going back to As Long As He Needs Me a lot. It's, I think it's one song. of the better written ballads of the early 1960s. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people sort of, in the same way they do to Annie, they simplify the show down. Mm -hmm. But it really is very complicated when you get into the psychology that's involved. And I would love to see, like, a John Doyle-esque production that fully, like, engages with, like, Nancy and Bill are sort of, like, products of this cycle and getting Mm. into, like, the class distinctions of everything that's going on. And just not being afraid of how dark it is. Because I think what's really hard about Oliver now is now it's known as a kid's show. Mm -hmm. And so people are scared to get as macabre with it as it is. Yeah. Well, I think I said this earlier when people were like, oh, yeah, that... I did say this earlier, and people were like, oh, yeah, that movie's cute. I'm like, when was the last time you watched it? Yeah, it's not cute. Like, it has its cute moments. I Do Anything is adorable. But that's not its defining yeah, feature. Yeah, like, that, but it's interesting, like, when people remember that from their childhood, those are the things that stay in their brain. Like, they forget about the murder of Nancy. They forget yeah. about Sykes getting shot. They forget about Oliver in a coffin. They forget about the macabre of it, um, which is what makes the show and the movie 
work yeah, as well work, as it does. What works about Oliver and the whole is there's an undercurrent of desperation to every single mm-hmm. thing that happens in the show. Mm-hmm. And death and time and social structure is prominent everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, rats threaten to bring the plague in. It's a fine <gasps> life. Plagan and Fagan is a good rhyme. It is good. Lionel Bart has some pretty good rhymes in the show. No, Li- Lionel Bart, he's much better than people give him credit for. Yeah. Oh, uh, one last question. Um, uh, Rainbow High Spectacle. Uh, Do you think this show needs production value to work? Production value in terms of casting. Solid. I think you need to show the density of the populace. Uh, Margaret, you already said it before. Uh, Instagram, people can find you at Stardust Child. Yes. Twitter, I'm assuming, same also thing. Also, Stardust Child. I'll spell it again for you because people love to drop that second S. S-T-A-R-D-U-S-T-S-C-H-I-L-D. You can also find me at margaret-hall.com, which links everything, including my articles that I write, information on Gemignani, my free newsletter, the classes I teach, the whole shebang. Is Gemignani uh, available for pre-order yet? It will be very, very soon. So get on the email list on my website and you will get first news about when the cover is going to be announced and the pre-order. Holla! You can find me on Instagram at Matt Coplick, usual spelling. If you like the podcast, uh, give us a five-star rating, give us a little review, uh, tell your friends about it. If you don't like the podcast, or rather, if you don't like any of my opinions... (laughs) Write me a review saying how much you think my opinions are garbage. I'll read it out loud on the podcast. Just make sure you give it a five-star rating. Ah. Algorithm is real. We need to lean into it. Uh, Join us next week as we uh, kick in the British invasion into high gear. Yes, it's a little over a decade later, but it's ramping up. We're putting our foot to the pedal. Uh, Miss Patty Lapone comes on Broadway, and women never sing a specific way ever again once she drops some rainbow high notes on us. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, I think because we love her so much, we're going to close out on Miss Shani Wallace. Take us away, Shani. Bye. Till the shadows disappear, let me hold you. My wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now 
and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org, because only together we rise.